Everybody, welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Heading down towards the end of the year, I can't believe it's November, uh, November eighth, twenty twenty two. This is your DC books. Pretty big week, fourteen books, some big events, a big thirtieth anniversary, start of maybe a new era in DC, continuation of a couple events. So, that being said, it was pretty Batman heavy this week, and I thought it was kind of average. Really, only one book that really stood out to me. So. I don't know. How'd you feel about the week overall, Rocky? Well, uh, I agree with you. There's, there's only uh, there's only a handful of books that really sort of stood out for me. The, the vast majority are are somewhat forgettable. Uh, so I would say we're batting just under half. I, I really like the other ones. I you know I think we can dispense of rather quickly, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, it's not like last week. DC, I think, is is slowly improving their quality overall. And uh, last week was uh, a banger week for DC, and uh, this week there's some there's some uh, standouts here that I'm sure we'll get to, and I'll be curious to know your pick of the week. So yeah, we can get started. Yeah, pick of the week actually is really easy this week. I'm not going to give it away, but uh, yeah, we'll get to it. Uh, all right, let's start off. I mentioned a Batman heavy week. Uh, I am Batman issue number fifteen from writer John Ridley. Carl Mostert is the artist, Ramulo Fajardo Jr. on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Um, you know, m- much as we thought with the way the last issue ended with Jace Fox as Batman supposedly beating to death uh, Whitaker, um, you know, it just wasn't, it just wasn't true. Uh, Whitaker being Detective Chubb's partner, Detective Chubb being the officer that came over to New York at the same time as Batman, not not with him, but you know they had a relationship in Gotham uh, in terms of you know knowing each other and not really caring for each other. And just so happened she came over, Jace Fox came over, and then yeah, it's all fake, just as we suspected. Everything to do with Batman being fearful. What are his biggest fears? What what are the fears that drive him? And then even as he's talking to Chubb, he, again he starts you know, acting like not himself takes Chubb hands her gun to him, her service pistol, and he's holding it to his head. Like the only way out of this to pay for the mistakes he's made is to kill himself. I mean, not really making sense. And then you turn the page and you see Jace on his knees reaching for the gun. And so what he's seeing in his mind's eye is not really what's happening. Turn around. Whitaker's not dead. Jace very confused. Long story short, it has everything to do with Sinestro, who is trying to prey on the fears, the, the insecurity, the self-doubt that Jace has had over the mistakes he's made all this time. It's part of the reason he became Batman is to try to atone for the guilt that he has over mistakes he's made. And this has everything to do with Dark Crisis, even though it doesn't say that it's a Dark Crisis tie-in. It sort of is because Sinestro has been assigned to take out Jace Fox Batman and to Ridley's credit, he does give us a reason, an in-story reason why Sinestro doesn't easily wipe out Jace Fox because we all know he can when it comes to the power of a yellow lantern ring and especially the power that Sinestro has to create these illusions. That's not a power we've ever seen him have before. It has everything to do with the fact that uh, Sinestro's powers right now are being augmented by the the darkness energy, which I 
I thought Sinestro was dead at this point. I'm, I admit to not being 100% on that. Um, but regardless, I mean, you could say, well, the Great Darkness brought him back or, or whatever. So anyway, uh, he wants to kind of play with Jace Fox and not just take him out. He even, uh, as I said, alludes to the fact he could take him out easily. I could... I think he said, I could turn him into a pile of ash from three light years away, but, you know, I want to experience his self-doubt and his weakness and whatnot. And eventually Jace Fox overcomes his fears and actually turns some of Sinestro's power against him and realizes that he can't sit on the sidelines with this dark crisis going on. So a bit of a cliched ending. And the main thing that I thought that I felt after reading this story was that you know, this whole Jace Fox, I am Batman story has been sort of siloed. It's sort of been outside of the, not outside of the regular continuity, but it hasn't gotten tied up into any of these big cosmic level events. Uh, you know, Bruce Wayne, he's been around for decades as Batman and, you know, smartest guy in the room most of the time. He sort of earned his place. He saved the world many, many times. I don't get that sense from Jace Fox. I'm, I'm coming to accept Jace Fox as Batman, even though I don't like when there's multiple characters with the same name. I've talked about that a bunch. Um, but to me, Jace Fox, this is a street-level character. This is a, a character for Ridley to tell stories about police corruption, as we've seen him do so far, and about street-level villains that don't necessarily have superpowers. Um, you know, you can get into family drama and family dynamics. You can talk about other sort of... Um, political and societal ills. Jace Fox, Batman is a perfect uh, vessel for that. Telling cosmic level stories and tying them into the, kind of the super fantastical stuff of the DC universe, it doesn't really work for me that well. Um, and even the Christian Ducey art, Christian Ducey's art is, is fantastic and getting a chance to see him do these, these superheroes, these super villains, it was a welcome change, but uh I don't know, for, for Jace Fox as a character, I didn't think it worked that well. So this was probably my least favorite issue. Uh, it just, seeing Sinestro here just felt really out of place. So I don't know. What did you think? Uh, well, I agree with you. I, you know, frankly, Jace Fox is is not a character who, I mean, John Ridley has always approached Jace Fox as, as Batman and, and has written him, frankly, a little bit more a little bit more realistic and a little bit more of a gritty city noir feel. He, and you're absolutely right. I agree. He he doesn't really, it's not doesn't really have an obvious place fighting along the other heroes in Dark Crisis. It's not that he's not good enough, but uh, it's just it it's just it's a character that almost should be in a different universe. But in any event, I, I I'm being a little bit more. Uh, well, I I probably shouldn't be harsh on it because John really does. I mean, a, a reasonably good job, but it still didn't work for me in terms of there's no way Sinestro would let him live. And the reason why Sinestro is possessed by the dark energies, the dark, uh, the dark, the dark, the great darkness, that's my take on it. That's why it didn't work for me. And why do I think Sinestro, w I don't think S Sinestro p would possess his reasoning uh, because guess what? Darkseid doesn't. Necron doesn't. All the other members of the dark army in Dark Crisis are not of their own mind. And and we're talking about mega level villains that don't like being controlled by anyone. They're not going to set, if they have any inkling at all to have any type of agency themselves, they're going to exercise it. And I find it very hard to believe that Sinestro is the lone person that seems to somehow be able to defy Pariah. 
uh, I mean, the last time Darkseid did that, in I think it was in Dark Crisis number two, he had some semblance of his, 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 himself and then the great darkness consumed him again and sort of took that away. But um, again, that's a minor nitpick. This, this actually, I actually like the fact that it worked enough that it, it, it brings, it brings uh, Jace Fox into the fold, into Dark Crisis. We're going to be reviewing uh, Dark Crisis. In fact, the next comic on the list here, uh, Jace Fox ends up in Dark Crisis where he, he does play uh, you could argue a, a significant role in in the creation of a weapon that will help defeat Pariah in Dark Crisis that we'll review next, and um, so I guess it's that. But you know, um, yeah, yeah, it's it's all right. It's all right. It's it's nice to see Jace Fox step up to the plate a little bit because he does need to have his attitude changed and attitude adjustment. And it's nice to see him sort of realize that being Batman is not just is a mantle, but it's it's not just a mantle; it's a responsibility to the rest of the world as well. And uh, it's nice to see him finally realize that. And hopefully, that this story, even though it's editorially forced because of Dark Crisis, it'll have consequences for Chase down the down the line. Oh, you're on mute. Sorry. Definitely has some tie-in to some other books. The one we're going to talk about next, uh, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, number six, from writer Joshua Williamson, Daniel Samper on art. Uh, we've got Samper and Rafa Sandoval on layouts. Sanchez does – Alejandro Sanchez does colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Um, we see Jace Fox show up here in – I don't want to say it's the final battle. Um, well, I guess it's the final battle with Pariah. Um, but not necessarily the final battle against the villains because we see, we see once Pariah is defeated, there's kind of a new champion of darkness, if you will. Um, so, man, this event, it has been a little convoluted, and we both have talked about this in the past, about how I really wish that it was just one one series, right? Because even something that's dropped here as kind of a note it says, oh, that was told to you in uh, Dark Crisis to Deadly Green. It's like a huge plot point. And Rocky, you even mentioned it at the time that it happened. Why is this not in the main series? It's a big, big plot point. Um, but I guess for people that didn't read Dark Crisis to Deadly Green, you find out about it here. But it's so it's one word balloon from John Kent. And it's easy to miss. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a bit problematic, but... What I will say, as I've said throughout this series, is, man, the price of admission on this, even though the story might be a little convoluted and, and not not paced the best, is the, the art. The art by Daniel Semper is just fantastic. This, this might be the best issue yet uh, in terms of art because, I mean, he's got to just be just killing himself on, on these issues because even on the panels where it's not like at literally 20 plus characters, it's wide open action. Like there's a scene between Superman and Doomsday. That's amazing. It's almost a full page, full page splash. There's a couple of insets in it. And then the following page, we get John and uh, his father punching Superman together. I mean, the art is just, it's so good. The color work is fantastic. Um, you know, if you were just looking at the art without reading the story, you might think, Oh man, this is like the greatest thing ever. The spectacle of it is there in the art. I just wish the narrative was a little, a little cleaner. Like I talked about it from the beginning. Who was the one pulling the strings? You know, who who is behind it? The great darkness is more like um, almost like a force of nature, like a hurricane or a tornado. Even 
Um, it doesn't necessarily have sentience the way we might think. So who, who is behind it? And you know, then we find out it's just pariah's madness itself, which doesn't really make sense to me. But um, I don't know. The, the narrative is problematic in my mind. And I don't know that this is going to be a memorable event. It might depend on what comes after. Like, what is this set up? What is this set up for kind of the status quo of the DC universe coming forward? Uh, but the fact that the, we have the other event, Batman versus Robin, that's going on right now, that's going to lead into uh, what's it, Lazarus Island. I think it's called the magic event next year. Like DC, yeah. can you just do this event? Just do Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths? Again, if it's supposed to be so big, like I've talked about before when we were getting all the lead-up series and it wasn't tying into everything, the fact that all the Justice League were supposedly dead but their monthly titles were still coming out. Like, If you're going to do it, then do it. But this just feels like a half measure, and it's one event leading into the other. And so ultimately, I think this is going to kind of be forgotten. But I don't know. What did you think of it? Well, uh, you're right that, well, first of all, Daniel Samper's art, fantastic. It, it really is amazing. And, and, and this, this, you know, this does have some, uh, some really good moments in, in it, uh, despite the wonkiness of the narrative. Uh, but I want, to, uh, I want to end on a high note, so I'm going to start with the lower notes, the story. It's the story is just completely wonky again. I mean, once again, we have a contradiction of plot points by by Williamson. Uh, now, nonsensically, out of the blue, apparently, Mister Terrific thinks that if they reconstruct the Pariah's antimatter cannon, that somehow that's going to defeat Pariah, and and of all people, he needs to help him reconstruct the cannon. Jace Fox Batman, who has a background in the military, but his dad's really, really smart. So I guess that means Chase Fox is really smart too. Helps him reconstruct the, the, the antimatter cannon, which they essentially end up shooting at Pariah and that kills Pariah, uh, which is interesting. I'm, it's interesting also when, they, when they're trying to reconstruct the antimatter cannon that apparently the logic of trying to fix the cannon, because it was actually taken out, it was destroyed, so they're, they're fixing a cannon. They, they've never seen it before. They know nothing about it. They don't even, I mean, how would Mr. Terrific know how to build an antimatter cannon? But he, not only does he know how to do it, but he says that, uh, t he, he tells, he tells everyone that they have to learn, they have to imagine they're in an antimatter universe and then fix it as if they were in the antimatter universe. So that would be like, I mean, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Uh, well, I guess we could do. We, does that mean you got to reverse all the circuits because you got to imagine you're building? Anyways, it was just absolute nonsense. Uh, one thing that Joshua Williamson is is I th I think he's terrible at is is comic book science because he doesn't stick to one set of own rules. He contradicts himself, and I'm not going to belabor the point. We we've talked about this in the previous issues about too many contradictions here. The Infinite Earths is already back. There's no. Pariah's already won. He's got the Infinite Earths back. For some reason, now he wants to kill the heroes. Why would you want to kill the heroes if you already got the Infinite Earths back? And But in any event, somebody's talking to Pariah. So before Pariah is killed after he's shot with the antimatter gun, Pariah is... Pariah manages to kill Firestorm, Cyborg, Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, and Green Arrow. But guess what? Don't worry about it. We already know that death means nothing. Because <laughs> we all know that these heroes that he's, he's so-called disintegrated are just going to pop up on other worlds that Pariah is going to create elsewhere and their dream worlds that we've seen snapshots of, which were in very, very underwhelming and disappointing uh, uh, related issues. 
And so Pariah then is taken off the board. But before he dies, we discover that somebody has been talking to Pariah. So the the dark, the great darkness has been influencing Pariah, but somebody else is controlling the great darkness. Now, I think the most obvious guess is probably the Anti-Monitor. Uh, but, you know, maybe it's going to be somebody else. Maybe it's the Anti-Monitor. Maybe it's whatever. Uh, maybe it's another. Maybe it's the enemy from, maybe it's the Gentry. Maybe it's the enemy from Grant Morrison's... Uh, uh, epic tale, uh, the the vampire vampiric monitor. Who knows? But in any event, uh, the great darkness. Once Pariah is killed, it has to go. Has to has to is still around. Well, how can that be? How come the great army still has all this power? Well, it's because the the great darkness finds itself embedded in Dar- Deathstroke. It infests infects Deathstroke, and Deathstroke, of course, wants to wants to fulfill his contract. And remember that Deathstroke is all about fulfilling a contract. And this is even magnified by Ed Brisson's uh, current take on Deathstroke, his formative origin. Deathstroke is all about uh, completing his contracts, and, and he wants to destroy all the legacy heroes. And in fact, that's what this Dark Crisis has been from the beginning. Uh, one of the major themes has been that Williamson has talked about was, you know, establishing the legacy characters, putting them at the forefront. And clearly this is one way of doing that. And so having Deathstroke take over for Pariah as the sort of the containment vessel for the great darkness uh, is uh, one way to to heighten the idea that now we have a Deathstroke. Deathstroke himself, uh, when he's unpossessed, can take on the Justice League. Uh, and, and now possessed with the great darkness, he's a potentially even greater threat. Um, so that's going to be continued next issue. In the meantime, though, I want to do, I want to give some props here to Joshua Williamson and Daniel Simpere, the way they choreograph uh, a battle sequence where there's a, there's, there's a period of time leading up to the, uh, to the destruction of Pariah where they need a distraction. They need somebody to, to delay the dark army. And that's, that's where John Kent, and I'm going to call him Superman because he has his Superman moment here. I know that we've been hard on him and calling him Superboy. I think, uh, dare I say, he's come close to earning that Superman mantle here uh, in the way that he takes on dark side, uh, the way he takes on dark side, doomsday, Necron, almost single-handedly. And he's about literally to, to die and Black Adam fails to get there in time to help uh, John Kent. Uh, but his father gets there in time in an, in an epic uh, scene that that you uh, you alluded to, that um, where Kal-El arrives, the Justice League arrives, because once Pry is gone and his his connection to the Dark Force is severed, uh, the worlds that Pry had created somehow through the deaths of the various heroes, the the the, the realm between the heroes combined with. Green Hal Jordan's connection to Necron, and combined with Barry Allen's connection to the Speed Force, they were able to. The Justice League was able to return just in time for Superman to save his son, Superman Kal-El, able to save his son John. It was a it was an epic moment, really great art, and the Justice League comes back, and all the now, now the legacy heroes are joined by the sort of I guess you could call the the first generation heroes or. Second generation, if you want to count the, the Justice Society. But in any event, there was some good moments here, uh, which, as you said, we have some really good moments and even spectacular and great moments, thanks to Daniel Semper's art. But it was hindered by a very, very sloppy and wonky narrative that, unfortunately, uh, no matter how great the art is, it's, it's probably going to deter from the significance of, of this event long term because already particularly with the extremely disappointing issue five no one's talking about this 
<laughs> no, the, the chatter about Dark Crisis, no one's talking about it. And maybe that's because of DC's editorial. They're always talking about events six months down the road and already what's coming with Lazarus Planet that you mentioned. But in any event, I thought this, this, this comic book had its moments, uh, wonky narrative, but fantastic art. Yeah, and like I said, it just I don't feel like there's going to be any lasting legacy. There's one issue left. This is issue six of seven. And so in the last issue, I, w- I can already tell you, I haven't read it, but I can already tell you what's going to happen. Deathstroke's going to be defeated, maybe killed to only come back at a later time. The Great Darkness will be purged from all of the villains. That'll go back to kind of status quo. Uh, but the Infinite Earths will be restored. It'll no longer be a multiverse of only 52 Earths. It will once again be an infinite uh, universe in, uh, in DC. And again, it goes back to the whole everything counts sort of thing. But... If that's what this, you know, in terms of editorially, what did this need to accomplish? Well, Joshua Williamson, we want you to write a story that restores the infinite number of DC's Earths. It could have been done in a much more streamlined way. This felt overly complicated to get to the, if it only needed to get to that point. And I get trying to pay homage to what came before with the original crisis and whatnot, but this just seems overly complicated and overly convoluted. And if that was all it needed to do, and that's the only long lasting legacy. And the only reason anybody will ever remember this event, it's felt like it could have been done in a more streamlined manner that maybe could have made it better. It could have just been pariah and, um, you know, a few other characters, I guess maybe if you do that, then it's not worthy of the, the title crisis. Maybe that goes back to the legacy of the first crisis where people expect them to be these big giant events, but it's crossovers like that just don't happen anymore. They just don't. Uh, you know, we've, we talked about that before uh, many times about how you, I, I talked just earlier about how you, the Justice League members that supposedly died, they were still coming out in their monthly books. You can't have them not show up in their monthly books anymore because there's too many people, there's too many other. Uh, there's so many people that, that read the books and comment on it, social media and that sort of thing. Uh, it's just a different time. You know, there's so many competing um, entertainment ch- uh, channels and avenues. So you, you, uh, we can't have Batman not in his book for three months or pause it for three months. No, we got to keep the money coming in. So maybe it's a uh, just a, a factor of, of the way entertainment is now. Maybe it's the fact that these companies are owned by giant corporations that just keep banging that drum of, you know, revenue, revenue, revenue. It's, it's kind of sad, but ultimately this, in my mind, this isn't worthy of being called a crisis. Um, maybe in scope, but not in quality. Um, well, I like you it, said, and I think primarily it's because a lot of the heroes of earth one, it's just earth prime fight. It all, it's not a multiversal group of heroes fighting pariah anymore. It's just, it's just our heroes on our yeah, earth. Where, where's the justice league incarnate. Yeah. They were such a huge part of the lead up. Yeah, it's just anyway, we're going to move on. Um, Batgirls number 12 is up next from writers Becky Clunan and Michael W. Conrad, Neil Gouge on art, Rico Renzi on colors, Becca Carey on letters, Jorge Corona with uh, Sarah Stern does the the main cover. Um, and this was a little this was a little rough for me as well. Um, the Neil Gouge art I thought was OK. I've seen his art look cleaner than this, but I don't know, maybe he's trying to kind of mimic a little bit of the Jorge Corona style and keep the same feel. So uh, I didn't think the art was bad. His sense of uh, visual storytelling is very, very good. 
it did feel sort of abrupt when we finally find out who the the Ripper is. It's just this Mr. Fun guy. Um, and yeah, it ends up being okay. There's some seeds planted that Steph, Stephanie Brown's father may still be alive. Uh, we get some humorous moments with uh, Cassandra Kane when she puts on Killer Moth's wings to try to fly him to... I thought she was taking him to the hospital, but she ends up taking him to the crime scene or, or the... Um, the scene of uh, Mr. This Mr. Fun, this Ripper, who's confronting Grace O'Halloran, who's the reporter turned podcaster, um, who has been talking about uh, the Hill Ripper on her podcast, trying to rile him up and get him to expose himself. So that works, but it's almost backfires in ways that she gets attacked by him. She doesn't really have anyone there to protect her, but uh, Cassandra Kane shows up in time. So th- this was okay. It just felt a little abrupt like um it's been such a mystery that the uh, we don't know who the hill ripper is and then all of a sudden it's just this guy shows up tax grace halloran oh it's it's this guy mr fun oh okay <laughs> haven't seen him before all right it's just i don't know the pacing was a little bit off so not not the strongest issue of batgirls by any means uh what do you think of it yeah it was, it, it was underwhelming i uh, i could uh every time i you know, every time I read an issue of Batgirls, I'm always uh, I'm just reminded of the. Uh, I still haven't adjusted to the the fact that we have children's style art, which is great for a children's comic book. This is children's style art, writing about a serial killer. This is just a just a really just an off-putting combination of story and art. To be quite frank, uh, we have Grace O'Callor, Grace O. o- Callahan, the podcaster, she's her eye is stabbed. She's bleeding out of an eye uh, from a serial killer, and it's it looks like something you, you'd read in a like a children's animated comic. It, it's just it's just an eclectic ray. Now, as for the story itself, because because the art is off for me, it's really hard for me to to get it. This is this is an adult storyline. There's no question about it. This is this is this is an adult story. This is about serial killing. This is this is about horrible topics, and uh, I will say this: here we are at issue twelve. I mean, finally, finally, what should have been addressed in issue one, we finally got some narration and some dialogue here that suggests that God forbid, Batgirl Cassandra Kane is a deadly assassin. She's actually actually has she should have issues psychological issues that it's actually touched upon here that yeah she when she's defeating the psychopath the serial killer Cassandra Kane actually is reminded by the fact that she it reminded her of her own family which is pretty screwed up psychopathic killers David Kane her father Lady Shiva her mother I like to see that what I don't want to see I don't want to see this creative team address that though <laughs> for a whole slew of reasons that have to do with their 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 uh, Frankly, the run on Wonder Woman, which continues to be meh, and this one, which just is a is a bad combination, is just an like I said, off putting combination of children style art with you know t- teenage sensibilities with adult takes. It just it doesn't work. And but I will I'm gonna on the positive side. I'll I'll give I'll give them some credit. Even though I don't want them to, I would rather have another creative team deal with Clue Master, deal with both of these characters have daddy issues. 
Seriously. Or or to put it to be more specific, because Cassandra Kane has got mommy and daddy issues, and Stephanie Kane has a daddy issue with Clue Master. That that is the storyline that should have been started from issue one, not issue twelve. It's too late now. The the audience for this comic, whatever it is, is left it. Sales show that. And it's easy to see why. And it's nice to see them finally getting back on track. Why it took 12 issues, you can blame editorial because it got sidestepped with a bunch of uh, Batman stories. But in any event, it's nice to see they're finally back on track. And I, I, I want to be able to put the foot, my foot in my mouth and say, Jace, I was wrong. Next issue, if they do a great storyline with Clue Master coming back and alive and Cassandra and Lady Shiva, a good Lady Shiva arc, that's what I want to see. Bring in, bring in Clue Master. Bring in Lady Shiva. Give us a storyline of that. That's the storyline that is cried out for being told here with these two characters. And we said that from the beginning, and it's nice to see we're getting some clues of that. And uh, here with Riddler, it's just very meh. At the, it ends here with Mad Hatter talking about Clue Master. Okay, well, we'll see. But uh, as uh, w- with Clunrad, one of the issues I have with them, and and they they're really they, they make this mistake with Wonder Woman. They just they just basically puke out a bunch of Rogues Gallery members that they it's like they go through an encyclopedia of villains of the Rogues Gallery the, of the hero and say okay let's let's and then we're going to use this one and then we're going to show this villain and then we're going to show this one and then we're going to show this one and there's no substance to it. And so I fear that's what's happening here with Batgirls. But I I hope I'm wrong. But sorry for the rant. <laughs> no, uh, it's it's fine. I, I, you know, you mentioned could they could this be turned around? And yeah, I mean, there are seeds planted here, as you mentioned, Stephanie Brown being mentioned, or uh, Cassandra Kane rather being mentioned as you know, this deadly assassin and whatnot. And I mean, that's really what what you and I have wanted all along. Let's lean into that really more adult themes. But to go along with that, to, to your other point, it wouldn't be enough just to head that direction and talk about kind of a more traditional superheroic Cassandra Kane, Stephanie Brown, Batgirl story. You got to get a different art. Like Neil, I'm not saying that Jorge Corona and Neil Gouge aren't good artists, but they're the wrong artists to tell that tone of story. There's yeah. something that's juvenile about their art that just doesn't send the right tone. The right tone doesn't come across if you, if you do that. So I almost think I was thinking about this as soon as I finished reading it, I was like, you know, what do I actually want out of this title? And it's like if you're if you're going to change the sto- the tone of the story that much and change the art that much, they probably would would just start over with another number one. I mean, it's like they don't really need an excuse to start over with another number one at these <laughs> these days. So I almost think that they would do that, but who, yeah. who knows? Um, I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't mind having a. I mean, I'm not the biggest Stephanie Brown fan, but I, I do enjoy Cassandra Kane, and I like the idea of Brown and Kane and Barbara Gordon. Um, you know, all sharing a title and calling it Batgirls. I like that, but it needs to be more in the vein of what Cassandra Kane's solo title used to be back in the day. Like, give me that aesthetic and that feel and just exactly. add in Stephanie Brown and and as much as I, you know, don't could take her or leave her, but it's working, I think, with this dynamic. But yeah, so the, the tone and feel of that old Batgirl title, the old Cassandra Kane Batgirl title, add in Stephanie Brown, add in Barbara Gordon, could keep them in the same building you could keep it you know in the same kind of headquarters with those three trying to figure it out i think it could work but a little more of a serious tone um and less stylized cartoony art would be my preference so i'm not dc editorial so 
Who knows what will happen? Uh, all right. Up next, Superman, Son of Kal-El, number 17. This is Kal-El Returns, Chapter 4, Unguarded. Script by Tom Taylor, art by Cian Torme and Ruari Coleman. Colors by Romulo Fajardo Jr., letters by Dave Sharp. Um, I'm not surprised to see that there's somebody else on the art here because it didn't look like Cian Torme's art. Um, it didn't, didn't look quite as finished and polished. Um, so uh, it's still not bad art. And it's very uh, emotional. There's a lot of close-ups on faces. And we do get the debut of uh, a new villain that's been hinted at called uh, Red Sin. And I'm sure that's a play on Red Sun because he does attack John Kent and causes him to bleed. And we all know that red solar radiation um, weakens Kryptonians. So uh, I'm sure that's going to play out at some point. The rest of the issue sort of focused on the relationship between John and his father, um, and I know Tom Taylor likes to tug at the heartstrings, but this one didn't work for me as well. I, John is reluctant to tell his dad about his relationship with Jay. And I, that just didn't, it didn't have any ring of truth to me. Like I, there's no part of me that feels like John would have had any doubt that he could have told that to his dad. Like it's almost like they're making it out to be a bigger deal than it should be. Um, so I don't know that that part of it didn't really work for me. So this issue was kind of meh for me. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it was. I I don't want to take away, uh, and I know you don't either. Uh, obviously, this let's let's be clear here. This one of the hallmarks and significance of this series, and this series will be ending, I think, next issue, or in the next few issues anyway. Uh, is that it, it, it is a it is an LGBTQ issue. It's significant uh, bisexuality of John Kent. It, it's a, it's a big deal, and Tom Taylor, I think, you know, he took that, he embraced it, he embraced it fully, and he wrote it. He wrote a decent tale uh, that was very character driven with a lot of emotional high points, which were uh, there was some character strengths there. The plot was a little weak, but the character work was there. This here is just sort of finishing along those lines. I think that, you know. You know, again, while it's not, it's 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 not. You know, I I can't relate to it, but I, it's clear that you know there's many people who probably can. You know, coming out to a father or coming to terms with that, and that's really what this is. And uh, there, there's a couple of things that I I openly wondered myself. Like for example, there was one. There was there's a scene here where Superman is talking to at the end where Superman is talking to his. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Cal Al is talking to John Kent. And Cal Al is trying to say, you know, when I was growing up, I felt like an outcast too. But I'm not trying, I'm not, I don't, not that I'm saying it's the same thing though. And I thought to myself, no, actually it was a bigger deal. <laughs> you used to have a secret identity and you were, you were a god, you were Superman. That's a bigger deal than merely having to come out in, in my mind. Or at a minimum, it's equal. And, um, but you got to be very careful with the subject matter. And, but the whole thing just didn't really feel... Like you said, Superman of all people, this is a guy that gets upset if he fails to rescue a kitten from a tree. I mean, there, you know, and that maybe that's a cliche, but it, it didn't really ring true in that regard. And, you know, I guess, you know, <laughs> I could probably be a little bit more harsh on it. But um, um, having said that, some moments here, he, the, the way that he plays with re the relationship between John Kent and Jay Nakamura the reason why the whole relationship has never worked for me is that you're not going to have me believe that a guy that was just aged up seven years, eight years, I know I'm harping on it, but I'm going to do it again. Suddenly he's, he's in love. 
suddenly he's I mean this this is this is where you this is where I would expect to see a relationship after maybe a year or two not after what a week two weeks three weeks you know running running to your boyfriend at the hospital running through Jane running through the nurse I mean it's you know, meeting the parents. I mean, this is the fastest courtship in history. If it's any consolation to those who don't like the relationship, I can tell you as a divorce lawyer, it's doomed to fail because <laughs> no relationship that moves this fast is going anywhere anytime soon. Like, I mean, that's just the harsh reality here. Again, I'm having a little fun with it. I'm poking fun at it. But this is this is just a lot of it does feel sort of it does as as wonderful as the character moments have been, I'd be lying if it said it didn't feel a little bit forced and forcing this relationship to those milestones much quicker than they would normally take. This is not an organically developed relationship by any stretch of the imagination. And just like we can criticize the development of normal character growth, we can also have the same criticism with respect to character relationships in comics. And I think that's one of the ways that this this the way that this relationship between John Kent and Jay has evolved, it uh, while it's been done very respectfully, it's been done very respectfully. I think it there's some things that just sort of don't really ring true for it, uh, and uh, I think I think you were right. I think uh, not to put words in your mouth, but I I, I think that's uh, I would agree with that. But uh, all in all, not a bad comic, and for for those that have been following this series and are fans of the the pairing. Uh, between Jay and uh, John, yeah, this this is a great this this will be a, an issue that people will enjoy. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, I don't don't mean to gloss over the fact that this may be really sp- speaking to some people and and you know giving them the courage and strength and confidence to come out you know to their family to their father. I don't want to uh, diminish that, um, but I, I don't relate to it on that level. And just for these particular characters. It just didn't really seem to ring true, but there's certainly value in that for sure. Uh, all right, up next, Multiversity Teen Justice number six, the the final issue, conclusion of Walls of Heartache, written by Danny Lore and Ivan Cohen, art by Marco Faia, colors by Enrica Aaron Angiolini, and letters by Carlos M. Mangual. I will say that at the end, there is a uh, an interesting... Um, picture uh, illustration in the last panel that says the end question mark we see a couple of what looks to be horns about to come up out of the water but uh we do get a chance to see the what earth is this again earth earth 11 11 that's right the gender swapping earth yeah 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 and we do get a chance to see what are they called the justice um they're not the justice league here the justice uh man i can't remember (laughs) what they're called um, but we do get a chance to see them okay. show up here after Multiversity Teen Justice has already sort of saved the day. Um, they do show up here. And so that was that was good to see. Uh, I think a lot of people, and they're from um, Graham Morrison's Multiversity, if you're wondering where they, uh, where they came from. But um, this wrapped up the story. It wrapped up the plot lines. I didn't leave much dangling. As I said, there are seeds planted moving forward. Um, so I'll give the creative team credit for uh, telling a complete story. Was this super compelling? Did it really speak to me? Eh, not really. The, the kind of the most fun I had with the series was just seeing new gender swap versions of the characters show up. 
uh, characters that we know and seeing what their costumes look like. So uh, shout out to Marco Faia for that. Also, uh, shout, out, shout out to Carlos and Manguel because a lot of times those new characters were accompanied with uh, their own new logo. So I thought this was okay. Um, I have to ask you. I have to ask you. What did you think of Georgia Gardner? Yeah, again, like <laughs> I, I'll tell you this: I'm not a Guy Gardner fan, so I, she's she's above the list uh, of uh, she's above Guy Gardner on my list of characters I'd want to read about. <laughs> I, I'm be more interested in reading about her than than I am about Guy. Um, so I, I'll say, based on the strength of the first couple of issues of this, I didn't think I would ever go back and read any of this again. Now there, there's a chance. Like if I if I had some free time and I came across it, I'd be like, oh yeah, let me read that all in kind of in one sitting, and see if I can get more out of it the next time around. Um, that that's a possibility. And there was a time when I didn't think there was any chance that that would be a possibility. So uh, ultimately. This was okay. And the one thing that it always was, we talked about this from the very beginning, was that uh, you can see the writer's passion for the characters from start to finish in this uh, in this story. So it definitely worked on that level. What did you think? Well, I never um, – well, there's a lot of – I think this, this series had too many characters. And I think there was no, – two. Yeah. I, I thought this – and it had too many moving parts, but I will agree with you that they tried very hard to give each character a personality. Uh, I just found that I just felt, I just felt a little bit overwhelmed a little bit. I actually not a little bit, kind of a lot. <laughs> and it, I, I struggled with putting the narrative together at different parts of this series. And uh, actually, and I actually found that, there was a couple of uh, there's there's one scene here uh, that where I guess Supergirl has is talking about when her mom Superwoman was killed by Doomsday and of course Doomsday is a female looking Doomsday and and then Robin character is talking about when her Batwoman her mother Batwoman was killed by was her back was broken by Bane so a lot of the cliches in terms of the normal DC history on earth prime is sort of earth, earth designated zero sort of replayed here, but with the gender swapping. So there's some tropiness there. And in, in an attempt to make this all interesting, I, I found myself really wanting to, to know more about the actual justice league. <laughs> yeah. They're called the, the, I looked justice. it up. They're called the, the justice guild. Well, the justice guild. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I still find myself, more interested in the Justice Guild. I think I know, I can guess why Editorial wanted to have a Teen Justice series instead of a Justice Guild series. But I actually think it was a mistake. I still think it was a mistake because if you, uh, frankly, even if you want to, I hate, I don't want to use the word politics, but if, <laughs> I mean, you actually have an entire planet, it's not forced. I mean, the planet is meant to be gender swapped. Why wouldn't you start with your bigger ticket players like the Justice Guild? Why wouldn't you do that? And then uh, it's the absence of the Justice Guild here. It's the lack of the parenting. It's the lack of a sense of legacy of this series where it really it really fell up, fell apart for me or it could have been better because just showing up at the 11th hour and they were taken off the field, it didn't work. We don't, I don't know these characters well enough. I don't think readers know these characters well enough. Um, I would have liked to have seen – We should. Th this feels like this should be the – you know, this was a six-issue story arc. I feel this should be the fourth or fifth or seventh issue 
six issue story arc. Like it feels, I just felt it was a little bit too, too convoluted and uh, it didn't, it didn't really work for me. I, I also found that uh, I didn't find the characters attractive enough. And quite frankly, I, I'll say the same thing this as I will about Batgirls. Uh, if ever there was a more, a need for a more traditional type of art, traditional DC style, it was for this title uh, because the characters don't, I'm not, I'm not inclined to want to come back to this title because they, I, I don't like the look of the characters. It, this, I, they're just, they just look too different. This is just like the Batgirl, the art in Batgirls. It's just, it just doesn't work for me. And it's another thing that unfortunately, um, I much prefer even uh, uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, who I've had issues with their writing, but it, when Wonder, in, in issues of Wonder Woman, they had an issue where they went to Earth 11. But the art there was, uh, even though that story was was very cliche and wonky, and but it was I just like it better. I like that more traditional style. But so all in all, this is this isn't this isn't a, you know, uh, I compare this to this isn't Teen Titans to me, and I know it's not meant to be. It's meant to be something different, and it is. It's just it's not something that I personally find myself that I'm going to be going back to. But if I come back to this, it'll have to have a different artist. Um, I mean, a significantly different kind of style artist. Give, give me like just more more traditional, whether it's a Jim Lee like or an Ivan Reese or so, I mean, just treat this treat these characters with the A level type of art instead of the the children's style children's animated type of feel art for it. It just it didn't work for me. It didn't work for me, but and anyways, I, I hope it, I hope it finds its audience. But I'm a fan of Multiversity, but and incidentally, in Multiversity, it was it was it was played differently as well. But anyways, uh, yeah, I mean, it's focused more on the Justice Guild, and I agree with you. Like, if we're going to go to this Earth, I would want to learn more about the Justice Guild. And I, I, yeah, I mean, because you're right. Even though the the story with Wonder Woman traveling through different mythological planes of reality or whatever you want to call it when they got to earth 11 those heroes looked they looked cool you know seeing the female version of superman the female version of aquaman they looked good um you know these are kids i don't i mean i don't read teen titans you know like not even i'm a fan of adam glass i didn't even read his teen titans run it's just not not something that interests yes. me so and, and even the even the covers the, the the various covers didn't do this you know didn't do it any favors because uh, again it just to reinforce the more of a you know uh, i guess i'm biased i'm a good lord i'm a guy in my 50s so people listening to this can yeah. laugh at me yeah. scoff, yeah. scoff at me I, I get it like what are you doing you're reading the kids it's a comic book what are you bitching about and and i yeah, realize we're, that. We're, probably, we're probably not the target audience for this book honestly <laughs> no, you know we really no, aren't yeah. so but but in in my defense, I I don't. If I was, I know myself. If I was in my twenties, I wouldn't like this style of art either. So I I. Yeah. But we'll we'll see. And and sales haven't exactly been kicking it on this title by any stretch. But yeah, in any event. Exactly. Uh, maybe it'll do all right in trade. Anyway, yeah. let's move on. Uh, Batman versus Robin number three uh, from writer Mark Wade, Mahmoud Azrar, and Scott Godlewski are the artists. Jordi Biller on color. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, I'll let you talk about the story beats. Um, I got to say, I, I haven't really been enjoying this very much. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is the more and more that we see of Dr. Fate lately, uh, he they seem to be lining him more up to the Dr. Fate that we saw in the movie, in the Black Adam movie recently, which I, I, I feel like it happens almost subconsciously, but it's so... 
like I can see why conspiracy theory uh, theorists would be like, no, this is editorially driven because it just seems to happen every time, you know, whether it's the costumes of the Avengers and the Ultimates or uh, or what's happening with Dr. Fate now. So anyway, yeah, I, I mean, I'm a huge Mark Wade fan, really respect the guy and what he's done in comics. Obviously, he's a giant DC fan. And this leads into Lazarus Island next year. Damian Wayne as this magic user antagonist, just in my mind, a poor use of the character, poor Damien, right? Like I went from, I couldn't stand the guy, not that, you know, poor Damien, cause I don't like him, but my point being that he went from being the spoiled brat, sort of unlikable, or, you know, you, he was such a jerk to the point that you liked him. You know, he's so bad. He was good kind of thing. And then they evolved him up in terms of giving him uh, some more maturity. And then right before his solo series, Joshua Wimson like wiped all that away and he was back to being a, a petulant brat. And then took Williamson's credit, he built him back up to a higher point than he'd ever been before. More mature, more likable, more introspective, more interesting. And now he's possessed by the demon Nezha on some level and he's back to being unlikable, uh, he's not exactly a brat, but his the thing that makes Damien Damien like that that kind of wit that he has, you know, where he'll just drop the biting comments on his fellow Robins, his brothers, as he calls them, or um, just his his insight and his ability to make logical leaps when he's investigating something and figure like that spark um, that is part of what we've seen Damien develop where he's gone from being a brat to being somebody interesting. That's gone, that's gone here. Um, and it's really disappointing in my mind. So I feel, I feel bad for Damien. He's been on this roller coaster, um, editorially dictated that, uh, I, I just feel bad for the guy, you know, there's all the hints of him being Batman six, six, six and being this big despot in the future and being an outright villain. We've had hints of that for John Kent for that matter too. I guess, the writers think that's interesting when really, honestly, that could be the least interesting thing. You take the greatest heroes of DC comics, Batman and Superman, and you make their sons villains. Like how much more cliche or tropey can you be? Do something more interesting than that. Do something more interesting with this story, with this event. Uh, you know, again, maybe it's just not for me. I'm not really into kind of the magical stuff that goes on in the, in the DC universe. Um, and we get more Dr. Fate here. Um, and as I said, hints of uh, him being more closely aligned to the Dr. Fate we saw in the Black Adam movie. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the last book that we talk about. Um, but ultimately, this, this, this event is just not doing it for me. And if anything, it's getting worse by the issue for me. The, I like the second issue less than the first. I like this issue less than the second. Uh, it, it was a real chore for me to read this. And the art is okay by Azrar. At times, it's it's really good. At other times, it's just okay. Um, and I think it's purposely colored in, in a way where it's not real bright, vibrant colors that jump off the page. I think that's purposeful to give a tone. But it, it, it's giving a tone that I don't really care for. It's It's like this bleak dreary kind of slog. And I just, uh, and again, like I'm surprised at how little I'm enjoying this considered considering that it's Mark Wade. 
But I know it's been working way more than uh, for you, way more than for me. So maybe you had a different experience with well, this issue. It has. There I, there I accept the challenge of trying to convince you uh, to like this. Uh, not that that's necessarily possible, but uh, look, I, I, I actually, I, I'm not finding this Damien to be the back to his old Damien. In fact, this particular issue, he's actually trying to see. He knows that the, he discovers by talking to Pixie in this issue that the Devil Nezha has been corrupted by the Lazarus, uh, by the Lazarus liquid, and it corroded his soul. And he even asked, "Can it be reversed?" Until ultimately, the, the demon Nezha comes upon him and basically, sort of like repossesses him. Because it, it, it's clear to me that at some point. Throughout this issue, Damien is st starting to get his wits about him more and more. And ultimately, at the end of the issue, when he confronts Pigsy about uh, the demon Nezha, the demon Nezha, you know, sort of puts his hand on him and, and sort of almost like he sort of strengthens his possession of Damien or his hold on him. The demon Nezha is essentially trying to take over the entire world. And it's revealed here with a, with a very strong connection to the Monkey King of all things, where <laughs> we have the... Uh, in the Monkey King, we've got King Fireball in Monkey King, or pardon me, King Fireball. King Fireball is the is the big bad, big bad villain in Monkey King. King Fireball is actually the son of the Demon Nezha, and that's revealed here. And the Demon Nezha is actually trying to build an army and uh, with by controlling all these heroes because he's preparing for what he believes to be an attack from his son, King Fireball, who we do not meet in this issue. But let me just start it. I mean. I don't know. I I love I I love this issue. I I, I just I, I thought it was awesome. We have Tim Drake with the Ragman's cloak of Clagiostro, Jason Todd with Aquaman's trident, Stephanie Brown with the coup stick of Black Bison. The old um, that's the old Firestorm villain. Dick Grayson with the sword of sin from Azrael, and they're out there to take out Batman. Meanwhile, Batman's flying there with Alfred, and they end up and when they end up attacking each other. Batman, through his conversations with Alfred, tells Alfred to wait by wait by the plane. And and as Batman battles uh, battles uh, Tim Drake, Jason Todd, Stephanie Brown, and ultimately ends up fighting uh, Nightwing, he ends up he ends up defeating them. And ultimately, at the end, in what is it in a, I thought it was a very touching moment. All this talk of is this Alfred? Uh, everyone wants Alfred back. I wanted Alfred back, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but at the end here. I f we finally get Alfred back, or so we thought. I was hoping Alfred would be back, but it ends up that Alfred, Alfred's soul, a, a, an echo of Alfred's soul, was resurrected by the d demon Nizha, just to try to just to try to psychologically torment uh, Batman and utilize Batman's guilt for having let Alfred die, or rather, for he's blaming himself for failing him. Uh, the conversation between Alfred and Batman at the end, and well, really Batman and pardon me, the conversation between Alfred and Bruce Wayne at the end, because that's how I interpret that, was basically telling him, "Look, let go of the guilt. This, this, you know, you didn't. It's unearned. You didn't do anything wrong. Don't rob me of my agency. I did what I did. When when Bane snapped my neck, you couldn't have controlled it. I thought there was some really good character moments there, and." And with Alfred's soul essentially dissipating in Batman's arms, there's a wonderful scene at the end where he puts back on his mask and he's done mourning. He's, he's, he's now guilt-free and he steps up and he walks into the cave with, with, with the battle yet to come against the demon Nezha and, and everyone else. I thought, it, I thought it worked very well. 
and I really enjoyed it. I also love that it's clear what uh, you mentioned about the Dr. Fate's helmet, which was I thought was uh, pretty cool. What the Demon Nezha is doing is utilizing all the various magic users in the DC Universe. And in this issue, the he, he's utilizing Black Alice to, to rob magic users of their magic. And in this, in this issue, uh, the Queen of Fables, who can change fictional... Uh, fictional things into uh, into reality. Her power is channeled into Dr. Fate's helmet. And we know from teaser images, from future advertisements, that Batman will ultimately end up uh, wearing Dr. Fate's helmet in the, uh, going into the future. So it's... Uh, I'm excited for this. I, I think this is building... This is actually building to something that uh, I think... I'm enjoying the ride. And I, I'm, I'm actually disappointed that, or not disappointed. I'm just, I'm, I'm disheartened that that you're not enjoying it because I actually, this is the type of storytelling that I like because I actually feels that it might be going somewhere. It's unexpected to me. I don't find this to be cliche or tropey, and I do think Damien is going to end up winning out the day here. Damien has a conversation with his mother Talia, and he psychologically imprisoned Talia in in her own mind, imprisoned in her own mind. And he's trying to get her to sort of uh, to acknowledge that she did wrong because he wants her to pay a price and, and, to, and to embrace what Raza Gal did in, in surrendering to the authorities and wanting to turn and, you know, become a better person. And she refuses. And, and now why would Damien be doing that? This is the, the Damien in this issue is not an evil Damien. He's not an evil bastard. He, he's clearly trying to get better, but then at the end, you know, Demon Nessa discovers what he's doing. And so the, the hold that the Demon Nessa has over Damien, I think it's questionable. And I wonder if it's because there's, because remember that Damien is an offspring, that the Demon Nessa, the Raza Gaul, you know, Damien Wayne is also uh, a Gaul. And uh, so maybe it's, it's the fact that he's got, he's got maybe for reasons of genetics or some other thing, he's got some ability to resist some of what the Demon Nashar does. I don't know. I'm only speculating, but I don't know. I enjoyed this and uh, I'm having, I have a very different, uh, this is probably, it's not going to be my pick of the week, but it was, it was in my top three, but. Well, I'm glad you're liking it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I can't, I can't say can't say I'm having the same experience. So, but yeah, I mean, you're right about the the moment between Bruce and and uh, and Alfred. That was uh, that was a welcome moment. So, uh, all right. Of course, we're not done with Batman yet. Up next, we have Batman Incorporated number two. Uh, no more teachers. Part two. Ed Brisson is the writer. John Timms does the art cover. Rex Locus on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. Uh, we we meet against uh, speculator alert. We meet the former. Rumored to have been killed, sidekick of Ghostmaker. So just like Batman has had his Robins, apparently Ghostmaker has Phantoms. Um, this guy's Phantom One. Whether or not there have been more Phantoms, I imagine at some point some writer, if Ghostmaker sticks around long enough, will find out that he's had more than one, and he can have Phantom Two and Phantom Three and Phantom Four or whatever. His uh, his costume's a little reminiscent of Ghostmaker's, and uh, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying this. The series, um, I think Ed Brisson does a great job of building on the mythos of Batman Incorporated. If I have any nitpick on the issue, you know, Batman Incorporated is uh, an international team and there are a lot of characters, so that can be kind of tough, especially if you're not familiar with these characters from them having showed up before. Um, 
And then the other aspect of that is we're, they're all in different places on the planet and it, the narrative jumps around and probably would be a little helpful. I would have appreciated if we had some little expositional boxes um, to make it a little more uh, clear because I can't remember the characters' names. We, we do get wh where they are, like when it jumps from one location to another. You know, it'll say up at the top, oh, now we're in Moscow, Russia. Now we're in Dublin, Ireland. But I can't remember who's where. <laughs> who's where. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's just on me because I read too many comics. But overall, this is a strong uh, series, and I'm really enjoying the John Timms art. Um, Ed Brisson is somebody I'm a big fan of. So, uh, yeah, curious to learn more about Phantom One. What do you think of this? Uh, well, uh I'm I'm really enjoying. We're getting a Ed Brisson is doing a a serviceable job. Uh, I thought I thought the opening issue was really good, uh, and I I think that the story here builds, and it's so high paced. It's it, it's it, it we jump from scene to scene to scene all over the world. It feels like a James Bond movie on 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 steroids. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's like our James Bond movie on crack. I mean, it's, it's, it's moving so fast from scene to scene. We literally have, we got, we, we got locations in Shanghai, Japan, Headley, BC, central Suriname, Moscow, Russia, and Dublin, Ireland. And we've got multiple players. We got uh, Sky, we got Sky Spider and Ghostmaker and Clown Hunter in Shanghai. We got El Gacho and, and I believe Raven Red. I had to Google some of this. I may have these names wrong. Uh, uh, we got El Gacho and Raven Red in in, in British Columbia, and they're battling and uh, they're 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 battling an unknown nemesis uh, uh, who's I, I don't know who it is. Uh, in in Central Suriname, we got Grey Wolf and Gyro, and they're trapped by the mentor, a former mentor of that we saw in the Chip Sardaski uh, the Night series. Uh, he, they're ultimately rescued by another Batman Incorporated member who I don't know who it is. Uh, it's, I mean, uh, th there's a lot of cool characters that show up that I don't know who they are. And there, we, we, we don't get any help from the narrative. Uh, there are conversations that take place between the characters that could in the conversation, you could easily have inserted the names of the characters in the conversation and it would still have sounded natural and help the reader know who the hell the characters are talking to. And that wasn't done. Um, now, I read this thing three times and I, I think I, I, I kind of figured it out. I still don't know who some of the characters are. Uh, there's a scene in Moscow, Russia with the knight and wingman. They confront a person who's unknown and they're rescued by a person who's unknown. <laughs> I don't know who it is. And then there's a scene in Dublin, Ireland, where I believe it's the Dark Ranger, uh, who is the Batman of Australia. And uh, ultimately it ends with Ghostmaker, um, Ghostmaker uh, trying to save the life of uh, Sky Spider, who is almost killed in an explosion. And Clown Hunter is kidnapped by Phantom One, who is the former sidekick of of Ghostmaker and he wants to get revenge because Ghostmaker apparently killed him at one point in time. Um, also a point of it, it, point that I thought was very interesting is that when, when I read the night and, and, and maybe you can help me with this, Jace, I thought there was one moment where, and I can't remember they had all these names of all these mentors during the, whatever eight issues or 10 issue series of the night with Chip Sardaski when Anton uh, Ghostmaker, who's also known as Anton, back in the day when Anton and Bruce were being trained by the one mentor 
that that Ghostmaker killed, Anton ended up killing, I recall that it wasn't clear to me. I, I thought Anton had killed him. I didn't think it was an accident. Here, Anton, when he's confronted about it by Sky, Sky Spider, confronts uh, Ghostmaker about his previous killing of some of his mentors, Ghostmaker's claiming it was in self-defense. And I don't, I don't believe it was. I, I, I actually question whether or not it was. I thought, I thought, and maybe I got to go back and reread those issues of the night, but it's not clear to me that, that Anton is as guiltless as he's making it appear. I think that probably, uh, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think, I wonder if Ghost, I wonder if Phantom One uh, maybe has a point. You know, again, he's, he's, he's killing too many people and that, that, that's, that's bad, but I'm wondering if, to what extent Ghostmaker is the author of his own misfortune here, because Ghostmaker, I thought, was somewhat of a killer, and he was certainly portrayed as such when uh, he sought training with Bruce Wayne through various uh, mentors. And so I'm, I'm a little bit confused here. I'm, I'm wondering if Ed Brisson, how, you know, I'm wondering if Ed Brisson read those stories by Chip Sardaski the same way that I did, and uh, I may very well be wrong. I'm going to have to go back and reread those issues of the night, but I don't know about you, but don't you recall Ghostmaker being kind of a killer when he was training with Bruce Wayne and he killed one of the the, the, the marksmen? Do you, do you yeah, I mean, he was definitely a killer. Um, and I, yeah, I don't recall it exactly. I just remember it, it, it was, he had like a cabin in the woods and, you know, it was yeah. the guy that was training them to use uh, firearms, basically. And I, 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 I do recall, so... I, I think, like, technically you could call it self-defense because the guy, you know, realized that Anton was, a, was a, in fact, a killer. He didn't trust him. And I think he probably pulled the gun first and Anton was, was forced to take him out. But I think Anton, he sort of forced the situation. He didn't do anything to, to de-escalate the situation. He welcomed it. So, yeah, I, I don't remember the exact details. But, yeah, if if, if I went back and read it, I, you know, obviously would have a better recall of it, but, but I do think that in that moment, it was the life of that mentor or the life of Anton, either Anton was going to kill the mentor or the mentor was going to kill Anton. Only one of them was walking away from that confrontation, mm. but could the confrontation have been deescalated? Yes. Did the confrontation happen in the first place because Anton himself is a killer? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, ultimately I think the blame falls on him. So yeah, you're right. He's being a little disingenuous when he's trying to, deflect but in his mind he's probably being truthful and you know you look back on your past and you know you're you may have a tendency to remember things that in such a way that it puts you in the best light so yeah uh, but i i i I, want to reiterate your comment though that i agree that it would have been really nice to have some some name plates or all these players we, we need to know who these people are and also when we review the Golden Age later uh, this e- later, uh, one of the things that I loved in the Golden Age is that they have a who's who on the back of it. This is a comic that would I wish they would have a who's who. They would have a page dedicated to each member of Batman Incorporated, a literal DC who's who of four or five like pages, or just just to give us a who's who. Uh, just so we give us some background on all the members of Batman Incorporated and tease future ones coming up. That's what this issue needs. And I'm actually stunned that editorial, we shouldn't have to say this, that because we absolutely need some help knowing who all these characters are because um, 
you know, I mean, maybe we're just, you know, we're just two old guys and we need better memories, but uh, maybe we got early onset dementia, but it's like, I mean, we just, we just finished, I mean, like we're fairly up to date on these, uh, on these comic books and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on some of these characters and we shouldn't have to, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to work and Google that all the time. But. Yeah, I mean, unless you're a Batman Incorporated expert, and some of these characters are even new to this version of Batman Incorporated, so yeah, it's 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 tough. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the Who's Who, because I just realized. So, Golden Age was like one of the first books I read when we got these, uh, when I started reading them over the weekend, and I got to those Who Who page, Who's Who's pages, and I I remember thinking, oh, I'm going to save those for later. I never went back and read them. Uh, I'm so bummed that I didn't do that, and now. I read the Red Lantern one. It was pretty good. You should read it. Yeah, as, as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to go and read them. But <laughs> uh, anyway, because we haven't had enough Batman yet, never enough Batman. Uh, we have Batman Urban Legends issue number 21. Oh. Uh, for some reason, there's not a credits page, so I'm just going to flip through real fast. The first story is The Wheelman of Gotham. It's written by Anthony Falcone and Michael Cho. Michael Cho handles the art as well. Dave Stewart on... Colors, Lucas Gatoni on letters. There's a second story uh, written by uh, Julio Anta. Miguel Mendoca is the artist. Roman Stevens on colors. Becca Carey on letters. Incredible art by Miguel, as usual. Um, and then the third story, which ties into an upcoming series, Arkham Academy. It's written by Dennis Culver, drawn by Hayden Sherman, colored by Jordi Belair, letters by Pat Barroso. And then the final story is a continuation from last issue where Bruce Wayne's parents show back up. They have time traveled from moments before their death. Uh, it's called The Murder Club. This is part two of four. It's written by Joey Esposito. Fantastic art by Vasco Gregev, uh, Alex Guarmas on colors, and Carlos Manguel on letters. So the first story, uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was okay. Um, I, I really enjoyed the Michael Cho art. It, that, it gives it a certain aesthetic. Um, what I didn't really care for was the way that it ended. It felt the ending felt a little bit abrupt. This f feels like it would have been better suited as kind of a longer narrative as opposed to being in an anthology. But the idea of somebody who has a little bit of access to the Speed Force and use she uses that ability to basically be a getaway driver. That's just a cool sort of uh, power to have. She's even able to, you know, um, drive in a, a beat up old sedan. She's, you know, as she's driving it, the car gets some speed force as well. And she's able to outrun the Batmobile and get away from Batman and Robin who are pursuing her. So, so that's really cool. Uh, but yeah, maybe a, a two part or three or four part would have been better for this just to, to flesh out the character a little more. Cause yeah, as I said, the, the, um, the ending appeared or felt a little bit rushed. The second story Survivor's guilt and super sort of meta and political talking about police brutality and police profiling and um, what's the, uh, the term that they use uh, stop and frisk where you can, you know, without probable cause, you can just stop and, and frisk anybody you want. Um, so for me, this was just, this was a little too political and a little too preachy um, to the point where I felt like I was being hit over the head with it. So other than the uh, Miguel Mendoca art, I, it's not something I would go back and, and reread. Uh, the Arkham Academy, I, I really can't see myself getting into this series when it starts. Just this idea of, hey, here's this school, 
kind of a scared straight school, if you will, where they take uh, the sons and daughters of siblings or what have you, uh, relatives of, of super villains they think are at risk of following in their relative or their, their however they're related to them, uh, in their footsteps and becoming supervillains themselves. So, I mean, again, it, it, it could be super tropey where we find out that the, the leaders of the school actually are using these – are brainwashing these kids or hypnotizing them or something to go out and actually commit crimes. I mean, uh, or they could go the other way and do a Suicide Squad type thing. I mean, it, it's all been done before. So, I don't – I kind of don't really see the need or the point of it. Um, but the Hayden Sherman art and the colors by Jordy Biller are pretty solid. And then uh, the last story, um, I liked the first issue a lot because uh, it felt like it had a big chunk of story. Um, this second part of the story I didn't enjoy as much because it felt like the pacing really slowed down. Um, we do see this villain, Time Commander, and I meant to look him up. I am not familiar with Time Commander. I don't know if it's a, that's a new villain or if he's um, – somebody that has showed up in DC comics in the past, but apparently he's, he's got everything to do with the time travel, how Thomas and Martha Kent are, or Martha Wayne rather, um, are, are back in the future. Uh, we know they're not going to stay there. Think about what that would do to Batman, to Bruce Wayne, if his parents were saved, you know, at the, at the last second, it's a little bit of a flashpoint sort of thing when you think about it. Yeah. And it also raised the question in my mind, like, well, why hasn't Batman ever gone back and, tried to save them, you know, like Barry did, Barry Allen did with his mother and it created Flashpoint. Maybe, maybe that's why Batman never has. Uh, I, I could imagine at some point some writer will tackle that at some point, maybe even an you know, alternate multiverse story or elsewhere story or, or what have you. So, yeah, not really sure where this is going. This, this uh, second chapter of the story is a bit chaotic. It kind of jumped all over the place. But the, the Vasco Gregev art is uh, is gorgeous. The color work is very bright and vibrant as well. So shout out to uh, Alex Quormas on the colors. Uh, any thoughts on any of these stories, Rocky? Yeah, well, first let me apologize to people who are watching on uh, YouTube. Uh, it's not loading on the box. I can't, I can't get the uh, comic book to load. It's, it's, it's not uh, – it keeps telling me it's locked. But in any event um, – uh, yeah, I I really like I like the Wheelman of Gotham. I love the I love the artistic style of uh, Michael Cho. I I really like it. Uh, the new character Hajin Lee, Hajin Grace Lee, uh, who's who's got a connection to the Speed Force, uh, is is that's pretty cool. Uh, sort of a, a race car driver that has a connection to the Speed Force. So any vehicle she gets into, uh, can somehow she can access it. I mean, she's a cool getaway driver. Might be a little bit cliche, but uh, you know, at least. At least it's a, it's something different and better than uh, a. I find it more interesting than being just a, somebody who's connected to the Speed Force who runs fast. I like the idea that this is a character. This Hajin Lee can connect to a char- can, can connect to the Speed Force, but she can't run fast. But she can imbue speed to uh, many perhaps any bit of machinery in this ta- in this case, obviously a vehicle. I, I like that idea, and I like the fact that she might be. Uh, she's in jail. She ends up in jail at the end of a storyline, but she might end up being a uh, an anti-hero at the end, or or perhaps even a full-time villain moving forward. I think it's an interesting character. Um, so, and also speculator alert. And I think you said that already. Uh, the Arkham the Arkham Academy story. The the writer is Dennis Culver. Now, uh, Dennis Culver is the writer of uh, Gotham 
I think it was that uh, that mangas. What is that? Or yeah, Future State. Yeah, Future, Future State, State Gotham, which is I'm not a fan of, but uh, but I will give him some credit here. This is Arkham Academy. This is already infinitely better. This opening chapter of Infinite of uh, Arkham Academy. It's still substantially better than the first than any issue I read of Teen Titans Academy. No question in my mind, and. Um, I like the idea that the character's uh, name is – it's actually the, the Son of Wrath. And uh, those who remember the, the classic Wrath character was sort of a, a, tw- a twisted version of Batman who became uh, – who essentially became Wrath after a Gotham City police officer murdered his parents. And so – and in front of him, and so he became the ultimate criminal Wrath who fought Batman. And his name is Elliot Caldwell. Well, his son David Caldwell becomes Scorn. And even though David hates the name, he's Scorn. Hey, that's what a, a, his fellow Arkham Asylum students will call him. There's Catboy, Death Trap, Enigma, the daughter of Riddler, and there's a wannabe Wilson and another character called the Noise. Already, I find these characters, every single one of them is more interesting than any character of Teen Titans Academy. Straight up. Straight up. And uh, I'm really curious to see what, what, what happens with the characters. And they're not criminals, but really, it's it's a it's they're in a juvenile it's a juvenile a super uh, super crime deterrent program they're in, and this Doctor Otis is their teacher, and it ends with them introducing them to Killer Croc. She's going to probably hope to try to scare the heck out of them to scare some good in them. And so I like the idea you take some juvenile kids and you you're trying to prevent them from becoming bad. I think that's so much more interesting than whatever Teen Titans Academy was. And it's just so sad because I think that the DC Universe, I can envision a future for the DC Universe. If it was done right, imagine if we had Gotham Gotham, Gotham Academy, Teen Titans Academy, uh, Arkham, uh, Arkham Academy, and, uh, or, and then throw in, throw in some other academies, let's say from Central City. or You know, you, you could literally have almost like a, like a mini division of, of, of students. You could do it that way. And... And you could have, you know, an annual event between all the academies or an annual storyline. I'm, and I'm just, I'm just throwing out ideas there. But, you know, I think there's a lot of potential here. Uh, and I, I really hope, you know, it's another reason why this is a speculator alert because I think this has a lot of potential. And, um, yeah, and the, the final storyline with, I, I think it's been done before with the Bruce uh, Jonathan, or pardon me, uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne being alive and now there's some time travel shenanigans. I'm a sucker for a good uh, time travel story. And so we'll have to wait and see what, what comes of it. Uh, because there was, uh, I, I don't know the name of the character. It's a character I never heard of before. So it must be a classic villain. The, the name of the villain. Yeah. At the time, end of the, yeah time commander. Time uh, commander. Yeah. Not, yeah that, that's sure. Yeah. So that's interesting. So we'll see. You know, it seems to be slow going. I don't know if it's going to be a six part story or what have you, but this was. I think it's four, think it's four parts. Yeah. And well, uh, just looking it up here, John Starr, name of two DC supervillains, first appeared Brave and the Bold 59, created by Bob Haney and Ramona Fraden, actually. And then there's a, uh, a new, his second. <laughs> so he showed up, Brave and the Bold 59, back in 1965. His second appearance was JSA classified number 34 in 2008. So it took him, what is that, 43 years to make his second appearance? And he most recently appeared in Super Sons following the DC rebirth of his titles. So 
Yeah, he's not a new character, um, but he certainly hasn't had many appearances. Yeah. And, and the so. funny thing is, I have that issue that just I have all the Justice Society classified issues. So I'll, I'll have, what number was that again? Uh, number eight, I think eight? I'll have to I'll have to read that issue. Yeah, uh, and his his biography is very, very short. So, oh, sorry, Justice JSA classified number thirty four. Okay, even the bold fifty nine Justice League classified thirty four in two thousand and eight. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll see what he has to do with the return of Bruce's parents. Uh, all right, speaking of too many characters, uh, nice house on the lake number eleven from writer James <laughs> Tynan the fourth. Alvaro Martinez Bueno on uh, the art and cover, Jordi Blair on colors, and World Design does letters. Oh, man. Um, we get a little double or a single page. It, it's horizontal rather than vertical, so landscape mode, if you will, um, showing who the characters are. It's a little character guide. It says guide to the characters. We see who the characters are, and we have their symbol superimposed over the front of them. Why this wasn't in the very first issue is beyond me. It was actually, it was the second, it was the one in 25 variant of the, of the first, of the first issue. It was the gotcha. second printing so it, of the third so issue. Yeah. Very hard to get. Oh, gotcha. it was, yeah. It was ridiculous. And I agree with you. It was ridiculous. It should, it should have been one of the variant covers that was sold with it, but it wasn't. It was, you know, again, another editorial blunder. Yeah, because it is so hard to keep track. There's so many. There's and the thing is that there's only. It doesn't even have Reg, who's kind of the eleventh secret character. Um, it, this just has the other ten. But there's no doubt in my mind that I'm going to have to go when this is all said and done. I'm going to have to go back and read this probably two or three more times until I know which character is talking when and who they. You know, especially when you talk about flashbacks and Walter's like transforming all over the place. Like it's just. The story's good, bordering on great, and the art's fantastic as well, but the cast, I think, is just too big. I think this might have been better served by Tynan to do, like, six characters with a secret seventh because it's just so hard to uh, to keep track. But what is interesting is we're getting some flashbacks in this particular issue that some of these these people that were saved by Walter were sort of aware of what he was going to do even before he started, even before the world was, you know, destroyed, if it really has been destroyed or if this is all just a thought experiment or what have you. But there were some that were aware of that. And I find that to be really, really interesting. It's just the dynamic between whatever it is that Walter is and, and these, these people, these people that thought he was human, considered him a friend that at some point realized he's, He's not like them, but the dynamic, the relationship dynamic, the friendship, the foundation, the connection is still there. I won't say the trust because I don't think anybody trusts him, even those that uh, realize you know who he is and are privy to his plans ahead of time. They certainly don't trust him, but there is a connection, um, and it's it's easy to understand, right? Like I mean, it's it's hardwired into us as humans. Like if if somebody were to come to me and say, "Yeah, the world's going to be destroyed tomorrow." And you're one of 10 people that's going to be saved. What am I going to say? No, let me die. <laughs> like, no, I, I'm going to want to live, right? That's just human nature. So uh, I do find that to be fascinating. And again, I think there's a high level of rereadability in this because it's such a, a layered story that I think as I go back and once it's all said and done, go back and reread it several times, I'm going to be pulling things out of this for many um, – many subsequent reads to come kind of like uh irredeemable 
from Mark Wade where I'll go back and reread that like once every couple of years, if not uh, every year, because I always find more depth to it. So, uh, and gorgeous art from, uh, from Martinez Bueno as well. What'd you think? I love this. Uh, I, I reread this about three times and, uh, you know, it's funny. I, as much as I complained about, we're going to, we're really going to sound like a bunch of old guys to people listening and watching because we complained <laughs> about all the characters in, uh, in another, in the, in another comic today. Now this is the second one, but I actually, I did get a handle on the characters cause I, I did what, what I did very wisely is that when I, the first issue, I kept very detailed notes. The first issue is jam packed with information. A, a lot of information is in that first issue. I know because I keep all my notes and I reviewed it. And I actually do have a handle on this issue. And I, I think this is fantastic. And I think this will absolutely read even better. And you alluded to it, uh, Jace, as, a, as one giant beautiful hardcover or trade ad because it, it's really good. The story here really comes together. And you're absolutely right. Walter, who could, who com- Walter is this alien who got his, who wanted to save 10 of his friends on this lake. Hence the name, Nice House on the Lake. Nice House on the Lake is essentially a, a place where uh, all his friends can remain immortal. They can never, they'll, they'll never grow old. They'll never die. They can have whatever they want. But, uh, Walter has his masters. He has his parents, his masters. And they, they basically, the rules which have been established, he's only allowed 10. Well, Unfortunately, there was an 11th one that Walter doesn't want his superiors to know about, and that's Reg. And he told Reg about what he was doing, and he also told another one of his friends, Nora. And the long and the short of it is, through all these machinations that I'm, I, I don't want to go into in too much detail because I want people to buy this from the beginning and buy this as a trade, is that when he explains all this to Nora, Nora has known for many years what 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 the ultimate plan is or most of it but he keeps erasing her memory and then restoring her memory whenever he wants to get some advice walter will restore nora's memory then erase it and in any event on day 31 it's revealed in this issue he uh uh, nora is in a deprivation tank sort of meditating and walter speaks to her there saying look i you know, I tried killing Reg because I don't, you know, we, there's 11 of us here. They don't know Reg is here because as you said on that character list, everyone thinks there's only 10. There's actually this guy named Reg. He's the 11th one. And when he's ultimately discovered, well, that's more than 10. And so they have to, before his superiors find out, Walter needs to eliminate uh, one of them. And he figures he's going to eliminate Reg, but he can't bring himself to do it because Walter isn't a killer. And as much he's not as heartless as his as his parents are, uh, or his parents or his superiors, whoever they are. And he's hoping that Nora, he, he and Nora and him sort of create this elaborate plan to essentially leave it to Nora to decide. And he'll only restore certain aspects of Nora's memory so that when she awakens and remembers, she'll remember it just enough to eliminate one of the eleven. And but it ends up being Ryan, this other character, Ryan, who ends up inadvertently, purely by accident, eliminating one of them by uh, who ends up being sh- who ended up being shot last issue, because they were ha- all these ten were having so much fun shooting each other because they can't die, and one of them uh, she stripped one of them of her she stripped another character named Nea. Nea dies, loses her immortality just as she was shot and she dies. And so now the guy holding her, Rich, he's, he's, he's absolutely livid. He wants to find out at, at the same time that Nor that this Nea dies, all of their memories are restored. So Ryan, 
who's the wild card, restores everybody's memories and everyone knows that Walter, what Walter has done. And so now potential total chaos will ensue. What's going to happen? Because they know they know what's going on and they know the secrets of the nice house on the lake. And we are at issue 11 here. We have one issue to go. I believe this is only 12 issues long. So the, the finale here, the chapter, is the world actually destroyed? Is this all an illusion? Is this just some sick game that Walter's superiors or parents are playing on him? What's the truth? Uh, man, I'm I'm loving this, and I. If people aren't reading this, you're absolutely crazy. But good news, it's almost over, and you can, I'm sure, very soon, pick this up. Hopefully for Christmas, this will come out as a beautiful trade or a hardcover. Because boy, this would make a really nice present for someone. Yeah, there's no doubt. This is a an evergreen story. I'm sure DC is going to be reprinting a number of. Um, formats over the years. Uh, okay, up next we have the long-anticipated Wildcats number one. Uh, this is from writer Matthew Rosenberg. Steven Segovia is the artist. Elmer Santos on colors. Farron Delgado on letters. Uh, this Cole Cash really steals the show here. We, we've seen Matthew Rosenberg write Grifter before, and he always does it with just the perfect level of irreverence and uh, and humor. Uh, I should also mention that there's some fantastic covers here. One of them is a uh, a recreation by Alan Qua of the Jim Lee cover of Wildcats number one. Uh, there's also an awesome looking zealot cover. Um, but other than Grifter, I didn't really find anything to stand out here. Not a, not a whole heck of a lot happened um, in the story. Uh, we also see Fairchild from Gen 13 as a member of Wildcats, which uh, you know hasn't been the case in the past. So this definitely isn't kind of a new version. Also, the Steven Segovia art looked very different from what I've seen Segovia's art look like before. His style really changes uh, from project to project. That's not to say that it doesn't suit um, this story and this narrative, uh, you know, kind of the tone aesthetically. It does, but it, it feels a little bit more like digitally painted than, uh, than actually drawn. So as long as Zealot's around, I'm going to be reading it. And Grifter in the hands of Matthew Rosenberg is, is a lot of fun. Um, but Zealot's probably my favorite Wildcats character. The other thing that I, f I found interesting is we heard, um, based on the solicitation or the, the in-house ads, I guess, that were put in other books for, uh, for this debut that Wildcats, so, uh, back in the day, it used to stand for Covert Action Teams, C-A-T-S. Uh, in, in this issue, we see Cole, uh, Cole Cash call it the Crisis Intervention Tactical Squad, so or CRISAV, he says. But you know, we know they're going to be Wildcats. Later on, he's in a bar and somebody goes, oh, you must lead a wild life. So that's where the name comes from, Wild and then Crisis Aversion Tactical Squad. So that, that's an interesting change from the old covert action team. Um, but yeah, I thought this was okay. It's Matthew Rosenberg on Grifter and Zealots in it. So yeah, I'm definitely on board. And the Zealot uh, cover by Art Germ is the one that I, I got because I couldn't pass that up. I mean, maybe one of my favorite Art Germ covers ever. So anyway, what did you think? Uh, well, I'm frustrated because once again, it's not opening up in the box here. Uh, so I can't, because it seems to be locked and it, it won't let me open it up. I could read it earlier this morning, but I, I wish I could show everyone who's watching the some some teaser pictures. But in any event, 
Uh, if it pops up here, I'll, I'll put it on. But uh, I, I love the story here. The, the humor between these characters, the rapport between Zealot, uh, whose name is Zana, and Cole Cash, Grifter, is, is, is hilarious. Uh, Marlo, the, the sort of like the, the short, uh, the, uh, the, the midget, the dwarf uh, leader. Uh, and I'm sure I offended midgets everywhere by saying that, but he's a, he's a midget, and uh, and he's uh, he's hilarious. And uh, oh, there we go. I think it just popped up. There we go. But uh, um, the, the the characterization here is is really good. I'm gonna quickly show some of the covers you you alluded to, uh, Jace. Uh, you know. Um, not a big fan of the uh, you know again childlike covers here. I don't know what. It's odd some of the uh, artistic choices, but uh, there's there's some nice callbacks uh, to to the original uh, Jim Lee cover from the from the '90s. Uh, beautiful uh, art germ cover of uh, Zealot is is, is beautiful. Uh, I note that there's a number of uh, variants here. There's a I think the Jim Lee one is a one in one hundred and fifty. Um, again, I think I just got to call DC for doing some just. I just think that's such a boneheadedly stupid decision. Uh, you know, Jim Lee, shame on you, Jim Lee. You mean, you mean you're the owner, you and Brandon Choi created Wildcats and you don't have the common decency to do a cover that, uh, that, that people don't have to pay an arm and a leg for. Really? That's how much you care about your title? I, uh, I mean, come on. Uh, I think, I think, I think we deserve a little bit more. DC's on the ropes and you're, you're doing a one in 150 variant. I mean, at least, at least do a title, at least draw one of the standard 399 covers. Uh, I mean, I think you owe that to the fans. I think I, and I think you in particular, Jim Lee, given the fact that um, DC's had some issues lately, uh, since you don't appear to be doing much else, why don't you draw? <laughs> Notwithstanding the fact that that might take a long time for you, uh, you had plenty of time to do it. But I rant a little bit. Uh, the storyline here is great. The story is... Uh, I'm not sure necessarily where it's going, but this this is really the, about Fairchild, uh, the, this the uh, from Gen 13 Fairchild essentially joining the team. Uh, Deathblow ends up getting killed. Fairchild is Fairchild sort of like a She-Hulk. She can turn. She has super strength, but only for about only for about 30 seconds. <laughs> so she doesn't last long. And as Marlo says to call to Grifter, he says, well, you know, you, you don't last long either. Do you Grifter? I mean, the, the innuendo and the, and the humor in this issue are hilarious. I love Zealot. Uh, you can tell uh, back in the day, Zealot and Grifter had a uh, on again, off again, somewhat volatile, somewhat hot, sexual relationship and i'm sure that's going to at some point be uh that'll be the case here in this iteration of, of the characters uh this to me is this to me is a, a team book with all the humor that you would expect matthew rosenberg to throw in here you and i really enjoyed his scripting of the grifter in the long con in the first six issues of batman urban legends we recall that it ended with uh the grifter uh, along with the wild, with the rest of the wildcats showing up and stealing in, stealing information on on the bat computer at the bottom of Wayne uh, Wayne Tower, that was great, and it's nice to see these characters back again. Interestingly enough, Deathblow gets killed in this issue. Uh, Michael Cray, Michael Cray had an entire 12, 24 issue series, and Michael Cray ends up getting killed in this very first issue. I thought, yeah, that but it, uh, my understanding is he's got. They have any number of bodies for him because it even says when he gets killed. That's the third time this month. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, so maybe. Think, yeah. Uh, oh, fair yeah, enough. <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a different 
version of, of death blow or Michael Cray than we've seen in the past. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, in any event, uh, Fairchild is to me, she's, uh, she's she Hulk done right at this point. All the, all the, all the hoopla and the controversy surrounding She-Hulk and the comic and the and the and the and the streaming. I love Fairchild. She's she keeps her looks. She's got her. She's got an attitude. She unfortunately doesn't have a lot of. She doesn't have a lot of endurance. <laughs> and uh, I, again, I I enjoyed this. This was really good. And oddly enough, what really throws a quirk, throws a wrench into things at the end, is that they're they're basically. Uh, Grifter ends up at the beginning of the issue. He ends up killing a scientist because the scientist was cruel to a monkey, uh, and he experimented on monkeys. So he pissed off Grifter. Grifter shot the scientist. Marlowe gets all pissed off and says, "Why did you kill the scientist? We sent you in to retrieve the scientist, and you killed him. Well, yeah, he was cruel to monkeys. Are you kidding me?" So they had to send him after another scientist because they had to replace the one that Grifter had killed at the beginning of the comic. I mean, this is funny stuff. It's, it's humorous. And they, of course they got to get Grifter. They got to locate him. He's getting drunk in a bar. He's hallucinating seeing his brother, Max, who died in an earlier mission that we know about from the earlier Batman urban legend series. So there's a lot of moving parts here that Matthew Rosenberg, he's bringing in his story elements from before. And I really think it works here. And at the end, they, they end up, being uh, they end up escaping their assailants only to find themselves in the in a bot in sort of like a pit that's surrounded by they they seem to be interrupting a meeting of a court of the court of owls so interesting the court of owls versus the wildcats i like the sound of that so i'm intrigued by this i really enjoyed this opening issue this is one of my one of my highlights of the week yeah it was a it was a lot of fun i i kind of just wish we'd gotten more than just just grifter um i mean it's great that we're getting great characterization for grifter but but it's not grifter it's wildcat so hopefully we'll get more of zealot and some other characters in the future we'll see yeah. uh all right up next wonder woman number 793 from michael w conrad and becky clunan emmanuel lupacchino does the pencils wade von grobinger on inks jordi belair on colors pat brosso on letters and then we do have uh the backup with the young um, Diana, which for the first time I didn't even read the backup, uh, sound like a broken record. But once again, I just don't understand why this backup is in here because it feels so wildly different than the aesthetic for the first story. Although this one, the two stories are much closer than they normally are, <laughs> I will say. Yes. Uh, but anyway, the backup's written by Jordi Belair, art is by Paulina Ganeshow, colors by Kendall Good, letters by Becca Carey. Uh, I'm going to let you go first. What did you think of uh, the Trinity returning to the JLA satellite? Uh, this, this felt like an episode of, uh, the super friends. This read like an episode of the super friends or like, it reminded me of justice league animated. I, I collected, uh, and, and by the way, that that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just different. And it's just, uh, well, I'm going to say it's, it's still a little disappointing because I, I expect just a higher level of, uh, I want a story that's more connected to the mainstream DC universe. This really just felt like it. I mean, there, let's just put it this way. Wonder Woman ends up, I mean, last issue, she ends up, I don't know. She's in the, some African jungle fighting the evil producers of the vile milk drinkers, some milk that somehow, if you drink, it turns you into a male chauvinist pig. 
<laughs> I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. Uh, anyways, she that then there's that was last issue, and now this issue, she's she gets a call to go to the Justice League satellite, which um, uh, Batman or Batman and or Superman is there, and they have a meeting, and uh, something's wrong with the satellite, and, and and it ends up being attacked by the satellite ends up being attacked by the Imperium. And the Imperium was actually, I think it was in the very first, one of the very first Justice League animated TV series, uh, cartoons, the Imperium, uh, they, they were leftovers of an old alien invasion of the Imperium. And they basically defeat the Imperium. And uh, Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman literally have cookies. They, they, they decide they're going to have lunch on the satellite, despite despite that there's no food there. And, and they find Martian Manhunter's cookies, because Martian Manhunter loves Oreo cookies. And so Batman finds the hidden Oreo cookies. Um, cause naturally Batman, you can't hide Oreo cookies from Batman, not even if you're Martian Manhunter. And so they have cookies and they, they just have a long protracted conversation and, uh, and, uh, they end up confronting the Imperium. They defeat them and Wonder Woman defeats them or sees through the deception because they're disguised as other members of the Justice League, like Green Lantern and Martian Manhunter. And she uses her magic lassos so she could see the truth of them. And, um... Uh, yeah, I, the art here by, uh, Emanuela Lapacino, I, I love her as an artist, so I enjoyed the art. Uh, it was, I just thought the, the I thought the story was a little simplistic, but it, it was, a, it was a decent one shot. And I think every now and then every series needs a one shot. I think it's good to have a good one shot once in a while. And this was, this was a good Trinity story, uh, so it, it was, it, it had, it, it was funny. I think it was funny. It had a couple of what I would consider a little bit cringy laugh, laugh out loud moments. I, I think the dialogue of Wonder Woman was a little off. I think the dialogue of Superman was off. I can't see, I really, I really think Batman was mischaracterized here. I don't see Batman, you know, entering a, a three-way hug fest. At one point, they all hugged each other in the end. This was, this, this was Super Friends. This was DC animated. This was super. In fact, even the the Batman in DC animated, in Justice League animated, would is not a touchy feely guy. Uh, even that one it w- would be off. So this this whole thing just really felt off to me. Uh, but I know, quite frankly, I always feel like I have to. There's somebody out there that'll say, "Well, you know, it's just you know, it's just a feel good one shot story," and you know, it's just. It's, it's the Trinity getting together, battling, battling the Imperium on the Justice League satellite. Well, yeah, I guess. But I just, this, this is, this feels like a comic book written for children. As opposed to written for adults that children can enjoy. And I, that's the problem with, you know, that's the problem with the Batgirls too. And, and this is here is just another example of, uh, you know, I mean, I never... I mean, this is the Imperium, and it just, I just, I just wish it was more exciting. But uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to get a kick out of this. At one point, Superman actually hands an Oreo cookie to the leader of the Imperium, who's actually, and he says, "Picture the future you want. It's in your hands." I, I, I'm, I'm a big guy on theme. How does an Oreo cookie, held by an Imperium leader or outcast, gonna help him picture his future i i didn't get that i i don't know i i mean i just 
I, I kept looking for something more in this and I, and I just couldn't find it. And then at the end, Wonder Woman, you know, they're talking about hope and, and I'm actually curious what, what's going to happen to the Imperium. Uh, where's the other Imperium fleet? How are they going to get the Imperium home? Those are actually interesting questions. And I guess we don't know the answer to them. We don't know what's going to happen to them. But th- it poses some interesting questions at the end. But the thing is, the whole story was so clearly intended to be silly. Just silly. Uh, and it was. It was just silly. And it's a, it's it's equally as silly, uh, maybe a little less silly than the vile milk drinkers, but still just silly. This is... This is a title that continues to just baffle me in terms of what is it trying to be? Who is it trying? Anyways, um, I didn't read the, I'm not reading the, I don't read the the backup either, but I agree with you that I'm fairly certain that I suppose if I could, you know, reading Young Diana was probably more of an adult sensibility, uh, an adult take than the the main story itself. But uh, I don't know, what do you think? Well, I didn't think it was silly at all. Um, I didn't get a juvenile feel or, or any of that from the main story. I, I mostly felt that it was it was basically like hitting us over the head with emotion and the fact that these aren't just heroes. They're regular people and they're friends, just like we all have friends in our, our regular life. So it was, you know, supposed to be humanizing these characters and showing how much they cared about each other. But it was just done in such a heavy-handed way that it it was kind of clumsy in a way. So I, I didn't really feel it was um, silly or juvenile. It more uh, as much as I just felt it was it wasn't executed in the best way. I mean, I, I feel like the best emotional uh, books are it, it's where the emotion comes naturally through you know normal everyday interaction uh, as opposed to okay, let's get all the Trinity in one place and then give some forced moments where they're eating cookies together and hugging each other or what have you. It just, I don't know. I, maybe it's not quite close enough to the holidays for me to appreciate that level of, uh, of schmaltz. Cause that's, that's what this felt like just a big schmaltz fest. Um, but I don't know what it says about uh, the quality of the wonder woman t- title lately, that this is one of the more <laughs> enjoyable issues lately. I mean, it is good to be reminded, even if it was in a very clumsy and heavy handed way, it is a good, um, a good thing to be reminded that, you know, Bruce and Diana and, and Clark are all friends. Um, plus, it, there's plenty of hints of, oh, Clark, you've just come back and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, we knew he was gone on War World with the War World saga. No mention of them all recently being uh, supposedly dead, though. So not sure how it ties into uh, <laughs> to Dark Crisis. But anyway, speaking of dead... Let's move on to our next book, The Death of Superman, a 30th anniversary special. So this is kind of interesting. <laughs> the fact that we're celebrating the fact that Superman died 30 years ago, but this isn't a reprint. Uh, it's got an incredible, the main cover is this incredible gatefold cover from Dan Jurgens, who drew that uh, Death of Superman issue back in the day. But these are stories by the same creators that gave us those uh that of that doomsday event back then in the triangle era of Superman 1992. So we have the first story is the life of Superman by Dan Jurgens, who does writing and pencils, Brett breeding does the finishes. That was the guy who did the finishes back then who did the inks on, um, on Jurgens pencils. Uh, Brad Anderson does colors, John Workman on letters. And then we have above and beyond by Jerry Ordway. Tom Grummet does the pencils, Doug Hazelwood on inks, Glenn Whitmore on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Then Roger Stern and Butch Geis 
uh, standing guard, Stern the writer, Geis the art, Glenn Whitmore on colors, Rob Lee on letters, and then Time by Louis Simonson, the writer, John Bogdanov, uh, the artist, Glenn Whitmore on colors, Rob Lee on letters. So again, the, these are the people that wrote Superman and action comics and Adventures of Superman and Steel back in the day. Those were the four Superman titles. So it was great to kind of revisit. Uh, I didn't know what to expect on this. I didn't do a lot of reading of the solicit uh, or whatnot, but the, these are all new stories, all new, and uh, the majority of them take place. Well, the first story takes place, I guess, in present time, or actually not present because John's still uh, eleven or twelve years old. Uh, he's not aged up yet, um, but relatively recent time. And then the rest all take place back in the day, back when Superman actually died, and are just different perspectives of what different people experienced on that day that, that Superman died. Um, so it was an enjoyable issue. Definitely felt of that time seeing this old, uh, these old style artists, um, you know, their style colored in that way on Superman, like it was back in the day. Um, the only nitpick I have, it's a very minor one is John learns about his father dying at the hands of doomsday in school. Like he's in school, in Metropolis, and they say, "Oh, today was the day that Superman died. We're celebrating the anniversary, or whatever." And and John's like, "Wait, what?" I just don't know. I mean, the fact that he lives in Metropolis, and his parents are reporters, and he's a smart kid. How? I mean, there's a memorial, there's a statue of Superman in Metropolis commemorating when his father <laughs> fought and died. Like, how does the kid get to be like ten or eleven years old and not know that his father was killed at one point? So that, that was the only thing that was kind of like, eh, I don't, that didn't really ring true to me. But again, minor nitpick. And for the most part, this was a, a fun reminder of what a big deal it was back then. This certainly isn't going to sell, you know, a million copies or whatever it was that Superman 75 sold. Um, but it's it's fun to remember back to that uh, that event. So what did you think of this? Well, I thought that the premise was, was good in terms of uh, – I like the idea of forming the story around, or at least parts of the story, because this is way too long. It's way too long. It, it, That's it, true. Yeah. It, this, this only needed to be, in my view, 22 pages. It didn't. The, this was bloated uh, with completely an unnecessary story. I could care less about the Guardian and Steel and everything else in there. Well, and but again, I think that was that was a way to get the, uh, the other creators that were a part of planning well, the event. Yeah. No, f- fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I and and to be absolutely clear, look, if uh, whatever it is, okay, thirty years later, if I uh, this was a nice change because I thought this was just going to be a rehash or a reprint issue of what I already knew. So seeing a story told from different perspectives with you know the artist and the old team back in, back on the saddle again. It's good. It was it was a nice callback. It's a nice tribute, and I really like the idea. Even though it was a little bit forced, and it lacks some degree of verisimilitude with as if John Kent, even a, even a whatever a five or six year old John Kent, or eight or nine, however however old he is in this issue at school, learning about the death of his father <laughs> at the hands of Doomsday at school. That that was a little hard to believe, but it was a nice setup and a nice way for John to ask ask Lois. Uh, some question, ask his mom some questions, and and it it did set up the larger story itself with father and son battling a a what is was it a doomsayer or uh, the the, the uh, other... no what do they call him doom 
Breaker, I think. Yeah, Doom Breaker or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it, it was okay. It was um, you know, like I said, you know, I it's I'm very curious to know, well, your thoughts. Like I personally, I have and this has nothing to do with the fantastic talents on, on this title, like Dan Jurgens and all those guys, they did an amazing job. But I just have no desire to revisit the death of Superman. I just, I mean, I've over the last thirty years, I've that's that that's been revisited in my mind. I feel it's been revisited every second year. I just over and over and over in multiple different storylines and alluded to again and again and again. I just have no desire to go back and and review it. So, or, or to to you know to reread it again. So when I saw this, I thought it was a nice surprise. So for a new generation of readers, I think this was perfectly written. For people that weren't alive 30 years ago, this will give you probably a better sense of what it was like, you know, and you can live vicariously, you know, because back then it was a very, very big deal as a comic collector. And, uh, but I just, you know, for whatever reason, I just, I don't know, there's, I, I think that, frankly, I think in so many ways, comic books have moved past that. It was, uh, it feels historical to me. So it feels like, a, you know, I don't know. Well, yeah, now, now heroes die and come back every other week so yeah. it's not a big maybe that's what it is it's like oh superman died again oh uh, he, he died in superman he died in issue 75 and he just came back about three times in the last four weeks so uh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah it's a different time but it was a big deal back then you're right yeah uh i do know there's a special edition of this as well that comes with um a uh, like an armband that supposedly is pretty cool. So I think I might have ordered that that version of it. I guess we'll I'll have to wait and see when it shows up at my shop uh, tomorrow. So uh, all right, one more book to talk about here: uh, the next Golden Age number one. This is from writer Jeff Johns. There are so many artists on this. I'm not sure why. I mean, is it? I don't know why. Like Jeff Johns has the hardest time getting just one artist. Um, is he turning the script late and then they're trying to get the book out? Like, I just don't, I just don't get it. I'd love if we could have Jeff Johns writing something, one consistent artist and have something come out on a monthly basis. Even his mad ghost stuff from image, you know, you get like four or five issues and then the thing disappears for a year. So, uh, I think that, yeah, it's likely just, I know a lot of times the mad ghost stuff is written or drawn rather by Gary Frank. I know he takes his time cause there's a lot of detail there and I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, this was a, the art was a little wonky on this. Individually, the art I think is good, but there's so many different artists that it kind of it jumps around in style and aesthetic. So anyway, Jeff Johns is a writer. Diego Orlatuga with J.P. Meyer and Scott Hanna is one art team. Then we have Jerry Ordway, we have Steve Lieber, we had Todd Knock, we have Scott Collins, we have Victor Bogdanovic, we have Brandon Peterson and Gary Frank. Then for letters, we have Nick Filardi, John Kalis, Matt Herms, Jordan Boyd, and uh, Brad Anderson. Uh, I'm sorry, that, that's for colors. And on letters, we have Rob Lee. Um, Mikel Yanin does a cover. It's pretty solid. Um, and there's uh, there's some other color, uh, covers as well. I think I got the Green Lantern, which is sort of reminiscent. It's Alan Scott Green Lantern. It's a little bit reminiscent of uh, almost like an Alex Ross cover, but it's actually by a guy named David Tolosky. Um, so I, I just couldn't, I couldn't resist. I almost pulled the trigger on the Mikhail Yanin cover, but uh, I'm a big Alan Scott guy. So I eventually went with that and I don't know, probably end up going down there tomorrow and getting the other Mikhail Yanin cover as well. Um, 
But yeah, this issue is narrated by Helena Wayne, actually, Earth 2 Huntress, um, son of Selena and uh, Selena Kyle and Bruce Wayne. Um, and it, but it jumps through time, um, forward and backward, and we get a ton of Dr. Fate um, in this with predicting the future and that sort of thing. And this all leads into Justice Society of America, number one. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this and, and more so from this idea that if you're not familiar coming out of the story that was told in uh, Flashpoint Beyond, this idea that there were 12 or 13 Golden Age characters that were basically removed from the timeline yeah. and now are going to be put back in by Jeff Johns. Obviously that's not true, right? Like there aren't <laughs> 12 or 13 golden age characters that weren't, that we've all forgotten existed. That's not the way, but in terms of the DC universe, what we're told is these people were removed for some reason and the uh, rip hunter and his time masters are going to put them back in. It's obviously that's going to change the DC universe timeline and it may have to do with what's coming up next year. Certainly has to do with what Johns is doing going forward. So all I can hope is that, this stuff comes out on time. Justice Society of America comes out on time so that it doesn't lose momentum because here's the thing about Jeff Johns. And I, I know I've heard some people lately. I don't know if it's um, just bitterness that, that Johns doesn't hardly write any DC comics anymore, but it's, when he does fans show up for him or what, but um, and I know the whole uh, rumors of, you know, bad behavior on set or whatever, I can only speak to my experience with Jeff and he's always been uh, nothing but um, very open and genuine and friendly whenever I've interviewed him or just stood around the DC booth and, and talked to him. It's clear he has a deep love of DC comics. I wish that he spent more time writing comics, but I know he's kind of put that behind him and is more focused on making films now. That's what he went to school for. If that's what makes him happy, I don't, I don't begrudge him that, but uh, just as a comic fan and as a fan of his work, you know, I, I lament the, the lost opportunities for stories from him. Um, but I think what the reason his stories resonate with fans is he just has such a great understanding of pacing and how much story to give. So, you know, we talked earlier about the Joshua Williamson crisis thing and how he's it's a lot of moving parts and it's a complicated story and the narrative's not really working. Well, you could make the same argument here in terms of what Jeff Johns is building with these missing characters and adding them back in and jumping from one timeline, one time period to another and all this huge cast of characters. But when Johns does it, it works. Like he just knows how to keep all these plates spinning in a way that's easy for the reader to understand. You, the story beats hit with the right amount of emotion and you don't leave the story with a bunch of questions. Like you just have a good understanding of, of what is going on. So I, I just think technically Johns is just a very, very good writer. He knows how to juggle a lot of characters. He knows how to, to tell a complicated story in a way that's easy to understand. And I think that's an underrated skill because reading the latest issue of Dark Crisis and Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, this is issue six. It has the advantage of being the sixth issue and being able to pull from groundwork and previous issues groundwork laid in and uh, previous parts of the story this new golden age yes it kind of ties in a little bit to flashpoint beyond but not completely just a little bit just tangentially but yet even though this is the first issue 
we're not sure where the story's going. In my mind, this is so much easier to understand and it just has a more complete feel um, and is more new reader friendly, even if you don't know who any of these characters are. So I really appreciated that. And although the art overall is so wildly disparate in style, um, each individual artist does a really good job. Like the scene of uh, Helena when she, because again, she's kind of getting this information, jumping through time. She herself is not jumping through time, but it's almost like these memories are, are popping up in her brain. And when she remembers the scene of her dad, Batman being killed, like the look on her face is just, it's just drawn really, really well. So individually, I think each artist did a great job. I just wish it was only one artist so that it would fit a little better. Um, and the, uh, the villain, the stranger he's called, or maybe I should say the antagonist that keeps popping up throughout Helena Wayne's life. Um, the one that she fears he's got red hair and he's a time traveler. All I can think is per Degaton. Yeah. I, I think it's, it has to be him. A younger yeah, version but, of per Degaton. It looks like a younger yeah, version or something. Usually per Degaton is, is like, big and buff and this is so maybe it's just a different version of him because this guy's pretty um slim yeah. but I, I i mean when you're talking justice society and a red-haired villain yeah and time travel you can't not think of per degaton i think exactly um yeah. so that's yeah that's my thought on on who that is but but overall i really really enjoyed this um i'll probably read it again before the next issue comes out that's how much i enjoyed it there are some great scenes. There's a double page spread. That's like right out of something MC Escher would do with, you know, staircases and different perspectives and, uh, you know, stairs going backwards and upside down and sideways and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this. Um, so curious on your, and, and that's with the fact that I forgot to read the who's who entries for these, golden age heroes who were removed from the timeline are going to be added back in the fact that they are like OG legit looking who's who entries is amazing. And the only thing that's kind of bumming me out about that is I, I splurged and spent the hundred bucks or 150 bucks or whatever it was for the who's who Omnibuy, you know, the big giant hardcover. <laughs> yeah. um, because I, I used to, whenever I'd come across who's who like in a dollar bin, I'd always buy them. Cause I kept telling myself one day I'm going to bind them together in this beautiful hardcover. And then DC eventually did it for me. So now I have all these extra issues, but the fact that these, these are new characters that are supposedly from the golden age, they're not in my who's who Omnibuy. So, uh, Maybe I'll print them up and stick them inside the front cover, just the completionist in me. But uh, but anyway, what are your thoughts? And, uh, uh, and yeah, give us a lowdown on some who's who's. Oh if boy. You're uh, I got to tell you, uh, I'm going to definitely be doing later this week. I'm going to be doing a, a, probably it'll be at least a, an hour deep dive into this issue. There is so much to mine, so much information in this issue. It is jam packed. I mean, I, I said before, I mean, you, you said it, uh, I'll say it. I'll say I'll convey the same thoughts, but I'll just say it more bluntly. Jane, Jeff Johns is a master. He's a master storyteller. And this is an absolute school in how to do it right. The complexity and the layers of storytelling in this in this opening issue is just incredible. And I mean, it, it it's dealing with 13 lost children. I mean, think of what Jeff Johns is doing. The, the brilliance of what Jeff Johns is doing here is that you know, I'm going to compare this to uh, 2015 Marvel's all-new Marvel. 
Remember they tried to diversify and they introduced all these new characters and everything else. And it was a controversial and all that other jazz. And I'm not, I'm not saying it for that reason. I'm saying for as a success in terms of creating all, bringing all these new characters forward, Jeff Johns has done more in this one issue to bring forward 13 new characters, the 13 lost children in a, in an exciting way that we're asking questions about these characters now that we'll be asking for. Just kiss my daughter goodnight. Uh, we're asking questions now about these these lost characters, and it's it's interesting. And what's great about it is we got a good we got a we got a good in story explanation for why where'd these thirteen lost children come from? Because guess what? I'm along. I've been collecting DC Comics for forty three years. There's no lost children. What are you talking about? There's no lost children. Well, yeah, there are lost children, and it's a really easy explanation because times changed. We've had a crisis. And we got some legacy characters. They've been lost in time. And because and the time masters have something to do with it. And this is an explanation why. And the way he plants a seed, and I love the date he chooses, November 22nd. Now, why is November 22nd significant? We don't know. But it's interesting that November 22nd, most of us think of 1963, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. It's rather curious that Jeff Johns uses the date of November 22nd at different time periods to tell stories of different time periods. November 22nd, uh, 1940, the formation of the JSA. Uh, also, 10 years from now, 10 years from now, uh, on November 22nd, young Helena is playing with her friends and she does a snow angel or rather a snow bat and she sees this stranger staring at her and uh, who we believe is per Degaton. And uh, we know that she's ultimately going to go uh, grow up uh, as the as obviously the daughter of Batman and likely be the one who will uh, play some key role as yet we're uh, unaware of. Uh, meanwhile, we have November 22nd in the year 3022, where the future Justice Society of America, we don't just have a legion of superheroes in the 30th century. <laughs> of course not. We have Jeff Johns and we're going to have a Justice Society in the 31st century as well which is even more cool. We're going to have an Alan Scott and Dr. Fate and, and, and an Atom Smasher in the 30th century. Uh, but they are apparently killed by Perdegaton in the future as well. We have November 22nd, 1976, uh, where Dr. Fate tries to remember a girl from Salem who he must be trying to remember, Stargirl, but he can't remember her name. Why can't he remember? We have November 22nd, 1940. Where the members of the Justice Society are t are teasing are teasing uh, Doctor Fate, trying to ask him what their futures are, and he has a vision of himself dying, and the Doctor Fates in various timelines are dying, and it, it the end begins with the death of Doctor Fate. That's said over and over again through the narrative. The end begins with the death of Doctor Fate. And that's curious. And does it have to do with this per Dagaton? Meanwhile, we got the Time Masters. Remember, we just came out of Flashpoint Beyond. We got Corky Baxter uh, of the Time Masters. How does this play into Watchmen? Well, it's rather interesting. They're looking for a guy by the name of Dryber. Uh, pardon me. Let me say this. Uh, uh, they're looking for a guy by the name of Dryberg. Well, Dan Dryberg is the Night Owl of the Watchmen. Now, what's the significance of Dan Dryberg of the, the Night Owl? Night Owl the second, the second Night Owl said he's married to Sally Jupiter. Uh, he's married to the Silk Spectre, and they are the they are the adoptive parents. They adopted Doctor Manhattan's son, who is actually the Mime and Marionette's son, at the end of Doomsday Clock. And so they're looking for Dryberg. Why? Because they're looking. Uh, obviously, presumably, uh, this Clark, 
Dr. Manhattan's son, or I guess Maimon Marionette's son, Clark is somebody who everyone's looking for. And why are they looking for him? What power does he have? Well, he's got the power of Dr. Man, uh, Dr. Manhattan, but what other significance does he have? We got, there's a lot of questions to be asked here, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we've got 13 other children that are lost. We got a red lantern. We got, we got other characters. We got red lantern in the who's who in the back. So th this is what I wish they would do with Batman Incorporated. Teases with, you know, teases with characters we haven't seen yet. It was in November 22nd in 19, uh, in, in World War II, uh, the Red Lantern uh, had many battles with Alan Scott. That's what it says in his who, who's who. But the Red Lantern disappeared at some point in a battle. That's good. That's interesting. We got Salem the Witch Girl. We've got the Quiz Kid. We got the Mr. Miracle uh, Thaddeus Brown. We know of Thaddeus Brown, but we were not familiar with him when he was younger. We got an unknown legionnaire with it blacked out, like looking at a CIA dossier, but but that's been vetted and it's all blacked out. We got Ladybug. We got the Boom. We got John Henry Jr. We got the Harlequins. We got Cherry Bomb. We got Betsy Ross and Molly Pitcher, and we got the Aquaman of the Golden Age. Uh there is so much to mine here, and this is the beginning of a new golden age for the DC Comics. And this is a way of keeping the old information, keeping the old society there, the old Justice Society, keeping all our heroes that we know and love in the DC Universe. But all it is is, oh, by the way, all of that happened. It's all true. But there's just some characters that are missing out of history. But don't worry, we're going to fill in the blanks. And everything that happened still happened, but these characters were around. You just didn't know they were. And here's how. And leave it to the master storyteller, Jeff Johns, to show us how. And uh, I have eminent confidence here that that's exactly what we're going to get. I love the story here of Helena Wayne, uh, her significance. I love the significance of Catwoman and Bat Batman, how they came to know each other. They had Helena, uh, where, where Catwoman actually... You know that the, the helmet of Naboo is no longer possessed by Naboo, but by another spirit. There's, there's again. I'm just. I could. I could go on, but I just encourage people. If you're a DC fan, to pick this up. If you're a longtime fan, pick this up. And if you're not a longtime fan, you can still pick this up. And because there might be an advantage to not being a longtime fan if you pick this up, because you, maybe knowing all too much of the past might just confuse you anyway. Although I got to tell you, knowing a good amount of DC's past and having forgotten some of it, this pulls me back in and it makes me feel right at home. And having just recently bought my, uh, let me brag again, having just recently bought my Doomsday Clock uh, Omnibus here, which is disappearing with my green screen, uh, I got to tell you, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this new golden age and I'm, I'm looking forward to what the new DCU has to offer here. And I got to tell you, between Jeff Johns and Mark Wade. I'm I'm really enjoying what DC has to offer, and uh, I I want I want Jeff Johns. I'm on the Jeff Johns team, leading into a new uh, the dawn of the DCU. Yeah, and there is one more single that uh, we're not gonna talk about in detail. Uh, the Flash, the fastest man alive, number three. This is the prequel to the the Flash movie that I think comes out next year. Written by Kenny Porter. Uh, the art is by Jason Howard. Letters by Steve Wands. Um, just, yeah, we haven't been reading it, but it's out there if you're so inclined. As far as collections go, there's some uh, pretty big collections. There's uh, the Flash Omnibus, Volume 1. Uh, this is the Mark Wade Omnibus. 
there's two different covers, a direct market and a, a regular cover. Uh, there's a Wonder Girl Homecoming hardcover, and this is the Yara Floor Wonder Girl, and it basically collects all of her series. So you've got Future State Wonder Woman 1 and 2, you've got Infinite Frontier 0, you got Wonder Girl 1 to 7, and Trial of the Amazons Wonder Girl 1 through 2. So if you're curious about who Yara Floor is, uh, you can pick that up. Quality of story is uh, uh, inconsistent, I'll say. Uh, we also have uh, Volume 1 of the latest Catwoman, um, the Tinny Howard uh, Catwoman run. Um, Catwoman Volume 1, Dangerous Liaisons, that's in trade. Uh, Justice League United Order Volume 2, this collects Justice League's 64 through 68, which is the Brian Bendis run. There is a Diana and Nubia Princesses of Amazon young adult book from um, husband and wife writing team Shannon and Dean Hale uh, that's out this week as well. And then an Absolute Dark Knights medal. If you're a big fan of that, you can pick up an Absolute, absolute Edition, see Greg Capullo's art in all his glory. And then finally, One Star Squadron from Mark Russell gets a trade as well. So uh, those are the collections, some of the other books that you'll see uh, in your shop from DC this week. So, all right. So uh, now what about our pick of the week? Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to guess that your pick of the week is uh, the next golden age. It, it is. Yeah. It is definitely yeah. my, my pick of the week. Uh, yeah. And I, sure. I, you know, a lot of times I don't like to pick the same book that you pick, but I, there's nothing else this week that even comes close. So I have to give my nod to uh, the next golden age as well. And it's not close. Like it stood, head and shoulders above everything else this week. So yeah, I'm, I'm real excited. And again, I just hope that Jeff Johns and whoever uh, his artists are on the, the book that they can keep it coming out in a timely fashion because I'm, I'm definitely all in and man, I wish, I wish nothing but the best for Jeff Johns and I want him to, to, you know, be successful in his career as a filmmaker, but, I'd really love to see him as the editor in chief or publisher or both at DC comics. Like yeah. in my mind, there's nobody better to steer that ship. So anyway, uh, yeah, definitely go out and pick up uh, the new golden age. As far as episodes this week, uh, creator spotlight for a creator owned project on zoop, uh, Saucer Country, which was a Vertigo title back in the day, and then continued as Saucer State over at IDW and finished. Uh, if you if you've read it, you know that the last issue, issue six at IDW, ended on this crazy cliffhanger. Well, now all the material, Saucer County, or uh, Saucer Country rather, Saucer State, and the, the the never before seen unpublished ending of that series is coming out. Uh, from uh, a creator-owned campaign on Zoop. So I talked to Paul Cornell, the writer, about how prescient he was back in the day, 10 years ago when he was writing that, and how so much of what he was writing came to pass. It's very, very interesting, especially it's a political book. It's about, if you're not familiar, it's about a woman who's running for president. She's the governor of New Mexico. You know, New Mexico has a big history with flying saucers, um, the Roswell incident and all that. She's the governor and she's running for president and she believes that she was kidnapped by aliens. So I do uh, <laughs> recommend it. So listen to the chat with Paul. It's not long. It's 20 
30 minutes, something like that, then go check out the campaign over at zoop.gg. So that's coming out this week. And uh, hopefully I'll have time to join Rocky to, uh, to break down uh, the next golden age. Cause yeah, as soon as we're done recording here, I'm reading those who's who entries. So uh, you have anything else coming up or anything else you want to tease as far as episodes rock? Uh, no, well, I might. Uh, I, I apologize this week, uh, Jim and I. Jim at Word Science and I. We usually do our indie podcast, but uh, my uh, my father in law uh, passed away this past weekend, and uh, uh, I was tied up with that. And, and and in that regard, I want to give a shout out to him. He was a big collector of uh, cartoon magazines, and uh, uh, I I love that. And I got uh, so I got I actually got a nice collection of cartoon magazines, largely because of my father in law, and he had a pretty cool man cave, and I got my a lot of portions of my man came are, are inspired by marty so you know god bless marty and uh so that's why i didn't do an indie podcast so uh his bless his passing was a blessing i just wanted to give him a shout out as i promised him i would in the man cave and when you make a promise in a man cave you have to keep it <laughs> so i kept it yeah we and, should uh, we should make it clear when he says his passing was a blessing he he was suffering from cancer and we all know what a debilitating disease that can be. So yes. uh, he's, yeah. he's now, he's now at peace and uh, I extend my condolences to you and your, your family, Rob. Yeah. It's never, never easy losing someone, even if you know, in the long run, it's, it's for the best and they're no longer suffering. Yeah. It's still, yeah. It's still hard. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I, but, but my intention is to end that on a high note uh, and uh, a nice celebration of his life, uh, which we're going to have, we're going to have two. We already had one. We're going to have another one in the spring. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I loved comics and he loved cartoon magazines, and there's not that much difference between the two, quite frankly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> in any event, uh, so I will. I will probably do a cartoon magazine review uh, at some point in the next two months if my schedules permit. But uh, what about yourself? You got any uh, interviews coming up? Yeah, other than the Paul Cornell interview, uh, there's a, another interview with somebody who's returning to the show, B. Clay Moore. He also has oh, yeah. a. Um, a zoop.gg campaign that's starting soon. So uh, yeah. it's also uh, for a property that was formerly a DC. I won't spoil it, but that's going to be coming up soon. Uh, and then you guys probably noticed I've been put, posting all sorts of bad idea content up on the social media. They've got this, <laughs> they've got this fan cup going on or they're making us jump through hoops to try to win some stuff. And uh, I'm just a big <laughs> fan of, of bad idea and, and they're, you have an advantage with bad idea because you got all the well. It, it's well earned. I mean, you, you you get up early and you go to the comic shop. You got all the badges, don't you? The bad idea badges. Yeah, yeah. I haven't missed one yet. And I, I told Dinesh. I went on record with Dinesh after Bad Idea shut down. I said, if it comes back, just knock it off with these buttons, man. I got better things to do than go stand out in front of the comic shop for hours before it. Oh, I mean, the first time I went at like ten thirty at night the previous night, spent all night, and then then the next time I think I went at like two in the morning. And then, and nobody ever got there. So the next time I went at like seven and again, nobody got there. And so the next time I went at eight and then I lost out on it and I had to go to a different shop. Sure. So this time I was like, you know, I, I didn't plan for it that well. Um, I had kind of forgotten about what the date was. And so I still had to take my daughter to school. Um, and you know, th th that's at eight and I want, didn't want to get there at eight again. So I'm like, let me try to go a little sooner. So, I, uh, she called up her best friend and said, Hey, can my dad drop me off at your house early? So I did that. And then I drove to my local, I, I did not actually, I did not drive to my local shop because when I got up that morning, I got it. The guy, the one other guy that goes to my LCS that cares about the bad idea buttons, he had, 
we've shared our phone numbers um, so that if one gets there first, we'll text the other guy, hey, try a different shop. So he had texted me at five in the morning and said, hey, I just got here. Don't come to the shop. Go somewhere else. So that one is like half an hour, 35 minutes from my house. So instead, I drove to one that's like 45 minutes from my house. <laughs> same same chain as my local comic oh, shop. Oh, my God. But I pulled into the parking lot. There was already somebody there. So I just kept driving. And I went to the, a third location of that chain that was another 15, 20 minutes away. And I got there and there was nobody there. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm here. I'm safe. I had no sooner parked and got out of my car than somebody else came walking up. And he's like, oh, are you here for the bad idea buttons? I was like, yep, I sure am. He's, that's his local shop. And he shows up early every Wednesday. He's a weekend warrior like, like me. I don't always get there. I mean, I almost always get there before the shop opens just because of the timing. Drop my daughter off at school. By the time I drive there, it's not open yet. Um, but he was going for the buttons. But he's a, just from hearing him talk to the other people that came up while we were waiting, I could tell he's a big speculator. Like he was talking about all the books that he was right. buying and stuff that he sold lately. So I kind of felt I felt justified in getting the buttons rather than him because he just would have put them up for sale. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was glad that I kind of beat him out. So I got those two. And then like I typically do that one, that shop opens at nine. I go to another shop that's by the university or uh, uh, Arizona state university that's in Tempe that doesn't open till 10. And if there's nobody there, I'll get in line there too. So I did that. And the other thing about this week, there were two issues. There were two number ones for bad idea. So it was two buttons. So I got two buttons at the first shop, drove to the second shop and waited you know, half an hour, 45 minutes and got two buttons there. So I actually got four, two of one, two for each of the first issues. So yeah, I haven't missed one yet. And if you guys saw it on social media, I had to dress up like a cowboy because that was one of their fan cup challenges and pulled out my dad's old leather chaps that are older than me <laughs> um, and squeezed into them and, and took some photos. <laughs> Little tight. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, they're made for, they were made like in the 1880s. So people were generally a lot smaller back then. So I had to do some modifications to get them to fit, but they're genuine leather tra uh, chaps. They have the fringe on the side. So if you guys want to laugh at how ridiculous I look, just go to the comic source on Twitter, or Instagram, and you can see the photo. Um, and I did have the advantage. I live in Arizona. So all I did was go down my street where there's no houses and had my uh, wife take a picture and I'm there among the scrub grass and desert landscape because that's where I live. So it looked super authentic with a big pile of yeah. bad idea of first pin buttons uh, yeah. piled up on a little uh, square of burlap. That's yeah. my treasure. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's fun. Really I mean, we'll see. If if I win fan of the year, the prize is huge. Like the whole bad idea, like not all the creators, but a lot of the creators and certainly all of the editorial staff, they will fly here to Phoenix and they'll throw a party at my local comic shop and there will be a coronation where I'm crowned fan of the year. Oh, wow. I'll definitely, If that goes down, I'll definitely have to record it, put it up on the YouTube channel. <laughs> but – I, I mean, I have no idea. They they have said that the challenges will get increasingly more ludicrous. So I was able to get all three done the first time. And they put up the scoreboard on Friday, this last Friday, and there was only 10 people that had three points. And I thought, wow, I'm kind of surprised there weren't more people. But then they put up an amended scoreboard today and basically said, yeah, when they went and combed back through social media, it's not always easy to find things, even things you're tagged in. 
the leaderboard is much larger than uh, than I thought. <laughs> At least twenty, if not more, people that have three three points because that's all that's been up for grabs so far. But fifteen weeks, three points each. So I think forty five will be the top score. I don't know what they do if people tie. I guess maybe if it gets toward the end and people are tied, they may take a picture from outer space. Well, I, I hope, I, I hope that all of you, all of you who have participated get something, even if you don't win the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 There's, there's, it's not just the grand prize. There's a lot of other prizes along the way. So uh, if you're curious about it, just go to um, uh, bad idea. Hello on Twitter. And they have all the information there. Never too late to join. Uh, and you never know. Like I lucked out with the cowboy thing. I had all that gear because I grew up, you know, going to um, – I grew up in an agricultural community basically. So I had all that I had all that stuff. But, you know, if they asked me to dress like a clown, you know, <laughs> am I going to have time to go and gather all the paraphernalia and that kind of thing? It, you know, who knows? But anyway, it's fun. It brings back kind of the chase aspects um, and some of the fun. And it gets people into comic shops. So – uh, big fan of what they do over right there. On. So, anyway, that's gonna do it for this episode, everybody. Definitely pick up uh, the next Golden Age at your comic shop tomorrow. Our favorite book this week from DC. Don't forget to subscribe to Rocky's channel if you don't do so already. Head over to YouTube, do a search for Comic Space Boom exclamation point. That way you don't miss out on any of his content. Ring the notification bell, subscribe, comment, like this video, all that kind of stuff. If you're curious about the other content we put out audio only on the Comic Source podcast, just do a search for the Comic Source wherever you get your podcast and give us a, a follow there. So we appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.